have I got a story for you. Danielle Hall is running for Lieutenant Governor of Delaware. She's a mother of 10, a private business owner, has lived in public housing, served in the military, obtained graduate degree, a graduate degree in business, and hopes to, amongst other things, preside over the Board of Pardons. Yep, really good reason for her wanting that. But first, a word from today's sponsor, AndrePsyche.com. AndrePsyche.com. It's the cute, quaint corner store boutique with all sorts of neat and original merch you've never been to because you have no idea it exists. AndrePsyche.com is tucked away in the northwest corner of the internet. And since you've never been there, let me give you a little preview of the plethora of potential purchases awaiting your perusing. We are talking about literature, clothing, paintings, prints, accessories, music, poetry, all created from Andre's psyche. And best of all, if you have a custom gift, something that has never been created, graced God's green earth, Andre will create it for you. He is a freelance creator extraordinaire. All you've got to do is message him with the details and he'll bust that thing out for you. So go to andrepsyche.com to see what speaks to you because each and every item that has been created also has a story behind it. Nothing is just made. Everything is created on andrepsyche.com. We are also brought to you by the Getting to Know You pod. Please do us a favor. We need and appreciate your support. So take a moment right now and push the subscribe button, whether you're listening to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeart, or whatever app you opened. While you're at it, if you wouldn't mind, rating and reviewing the podcast, especially if you're listening to us through Apple. And if you haven't already, friend and follow the pod on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. All you have to do is search us up. It's getting the number two, no, the letter U, pod. Finally, we are looking for sponsors and advertisers. So if you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach, consider partnering with us here at the Getting to Know You pod. Because we get to know people from all around the world. This podcast has been downloaded in over 25 different countries, and we are up to 40 states in America. So if you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your products, more clicks on your whatever, just message us. Our advertising rates are extremely reasonable, and we would love to partner with you. And now, getting to know you. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you. I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. My cup of tea. On today's show. We are getting to know Danielle, and she is coming to us from, I believe it's the great city of Dover in Delaware. Am I correct? That's it, yes. And Danielle is running, actually the endorsed candidate by the Republican Party for Lieutenant Governor of Delaware. That's kind of cool, man. (laughs) Super excited. No doubt. Well, thank you so much for finding time um, with life and with campaigning to come on and uh let the listeners get to know you. I really appreciate it. 
I appreciate you having me and extending the kind invitation, Sean. I'll let me turn my my beeping phone off so we won't be yeah. interrupted. Well, actually, there we go. Like I was, we can start at the phone. We might as well. How crazy is your phone while you're not only dealing with a family, you're also a business owner and um, you're running for a government office. Like that thing just has to go off nonstop all day. It does, and I usually have it on silent so or on uh, vibrate, so it doesn't make too terribly much noise all day. But uh, you know, with social media and all of that, everything has a notification. Right. It beeps, it buzzes, it chimes, it hums, it sings, <laughs> it does all kinds of craziness. So, yeah, it's a, it's a noisy device, that's for sure. Are you? I wonder this about um, people running for office. Are you becoming like? almost more addicted to the social media, and addicted is probably the wrong word, but just like feeling this need to constantly check your phone, constantly not miss out on something? Well, if you look at my stats, it'll say that she's very highly responsive. So, you know, that's a, that's a metric that you have uh, that lets people know how reachable you are. And I think one of the things that I've often felt is the fact that our elected officials are not accessible and they're not reachable. So that's one of the things I kind of pride myself on is being very responsive and have a short turnaround time for questions and let people know that I'm completely engaged in what it is I'm doing. I think it communicates a lot of sincerity on a person's part with their willingness to have, you know, the Q&A of whatever it is they're concerned about. Why do you think that, um, as people get elected, they get more distant? That's an interesting question. Uh, some folks, I found that even when they are running, they're not necessarily responsive. And hmm. I think it just comes down to a person's character and their willingness uh, to represent the people that they are trying to get elected in that particular office for anyway. So I think if you are really truly seeking to be a public servant, you have to be accessible. So I plan on doing that. I can't speak for anybody else, but I know I plan on doing that. My cell phone number has been the same for the last 15 years. I didn't mask <laughs> it or disguise it for the campaign, and I'm not planning on changing it. So you'll be able to find me. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've I've always kind of wondered, is it, do people fear the losing, especially now with hot mics and everything? Like it's, I, I wonder if people just worry about the quote unquote soundbite, like ruining them. So they just want to make sure however they appear is very, um, according to what they want it to be almost like, like not able to be interpreted. <laughs> well, I think that when you're a person who's scripted, I think that you might have that type of a phobia, but I genuinely speak from my heart on the issues. And so you will, rarely ever catch me with a piece of paper in my hand or notes or a notebook or a binder of sorts to go through. I, I answer things from the heart. And so I'm not looking for that sound bite, so to speak. It's, it's just things that just flow for me because I have passion in those areas. So yeah. that's about the best I can answer that question. Yeah. Right. Much more. No, and it's like, I just get into the psychology and motivation behind decisions a lot. And it is something that I worry or I wonder about with people who are elected and are so dependent on their image being caught up somehow. You know, I just really wonder if that affects them wanting to be open, wanting them to be responsive, even them wanting to like joke and have fun, you know, like, like send out a silly message somehow, or like a meme, like they could get just 
beaten over the head in social media. And it's so easy for people to make someone trend now without actually action happening. And this then, and now they're like, Oh my God, I'm trending. And you got to go into damage control. And it's like, really all cause you liked something. <laughs> like I get it. I get it. There, there is a lot of uh, public scrutiny. And I think the more that we have trended toward using uh, social media platforms that where there used to be just the television or radio, I mean, you have a lot of things that are going on and they're happening in real time. So people are able to see your expression. Somebody's over on the sideline with a cell phone videoing. I mean, there's just so much ability to be able to capture those real time moments. So I agree that some people are very, are very guarded and they're always looking to figure out, you know, if they're looking a certain way or if they're behaving a certain way. Uh, I think there is a lot of scrutiny in that regard. Dude, it's gotta be so taxing. It would just make me exhausted to have to worry like that much um, about like going to the grocery. Like I would go, I would become a nut just going out to the grocery store thinking like, will people judge me based on whole milk or almond milk? (laughs) (laughs) Something as silly as that, you know? I tell people all the time, um, if you see my campaign photos, those are my glamour shots. And I just want people to know that I clean up nicely. But if you catch me out in my everyday walk, um, I have on a t-shirt, my jeans. Um, I was in the military. I was maintenance. So I like my boots. Um, if it didn't fit in my pocket, it didn't go. I don't like to carry purses and nice. you know all those kinds of things. So, um, you know, I just try to be the real authentic me. So, so, you know, that's kind of where I'm at with that. One of my little ones just came in the background. Welcome. <laughs> yes. But he's not old enough to vote, so you're not paying any sort of attention to him, right? Well, you no, know, I'm that's just... my youngest. She's eight. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the devices rule their world. So they like their tablets and they like, you know, all the different things that they do. So I try real hard to um, give them time limits on how long they can be on. They get annoyed with me because at a certain time of the evening, the internet goes off to those devices. So I don't allow them to just veg out in their little respective world. So, right. you know, it's exciting when the phone rings and they can run upstairs and say, mom, the phone just rang. <laughs> it's a distraction. Man, do you remember when phones used to ring and you had no idea who was there? Exactly. Like, now we have caller ID. <laughs> I remember, I'm going to tell my age now, I'm 50. So I remember when we didn't even have touch tone, there was rotary. And yeah. you know, even even if you had a touch tone phone, you still had like the, the rotary sound when you touched the buttons. <laughs> that was, that's the te- so true. Yeah, technology has come a long way. <laughs> now we have devices that, you know, act as computers in our hands. It's so it's come a long way. Dude, those digital touch tones were crazy because if you like got – for me, it would be like super excited that I got a girl's number and I'm giving her a call back. And if you dial too quick, you would jack up like the the delay or it needed time in between, I guess, for that rotary issue. Yes. <laughs> That's a, I hadn't thought about those things in forever. I just, I miss like being a kid and like the phone ringing or getting mail and being like, Ooh, today I could get a letter from someone, you know, there or like go. when the phone rings, you're like, Ooh, man, I wonder what friend's calling kind of a thing. Like it, it's, there was something like sweet and innocent to it. Yeah, you took me back to a place in my kids, my older kids' days, uh, Blue's Clues, and, oh, and yeah. when they got the letter, they had a whole little ditty. We just got a letter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder who it's from. Oh, 
those are, man, those are great years with kids. Yes. Um, I, I miss it. So I have one daughter who is 10. Um, and she's like on that scary verge of like teen, you know, she's like right there, but she's not. And I can they tell like, cleaners. yeah, yes. dude, it's, I'm, I'm just feeling like any day I'm gonna wake up and it's over, you know? And like the childhood, the sweet innocence is just going to be gone. And I'm a, I don't know, personally, like, like it's, it's almost like an empty nest syndrome, pre preemptive empty nest where I'm just like, Oh my God, what's going to happen? Well, I'm going to share my fun fact with you. I have 10 children oh, and of those 10, six are adults. So I have full, I have four full timers still in the house. Two of them are in elementary school. They're going into the third and the fifth grade. And then the older two are in high school. They are a junior and a senior this year. Oh, so, wow. you know, People people laughed at me because when my last two sons uh, left the house, they joined the military, and you would have thought that I had an empty nest, and then I had that stark realization that I still had four children living in my house, and insanity <laughs> came back to me instantly. So, you know, one day I'll get there. The light's at the end of the tunnel, and I'm going to miss them, but I have grandchildren now that I can love on and send home. Yeah, I've heard, I've, I hear that is the best, and you don't it have to, like, discipline as much, you know? What's yes. The, oh my God. So what is the bedroom situation like? How packed were you at any point with 10 kids? Like five, five to a room, four to a room? Sure, no, it wasn't that bad. We oh, have wow. six bedrooms. Oh, okay. And I think that the highest occupancy at one time was probably six and a half because I had college students that would come home uh, for a few weeks here and there and then they would go on back to school. So gotcha. um, we had a, a couple that shared rooms um, and then it was always a, a competition over who was going to get their own room when another one moved out the house. Yeah, so right. that's always been fun. <laughs> Just counting the days. Yes. Right? Like <laughs> I can imagine. And then talking, like talking mess to each other, like over breakfast that's or it. if you're outside playing, you know, that's it. The two yeah. youngest, they are 18 months apart. They are eight and almost 10 and they have been, um, living together. I have air quotes here. They have, their, they have a room that they share. And so the, the newest discussion, my, my soon to be 10 year old says, mom, for my birthday, can I have my own room? Mm. So we're exploring options. That She's might... picking out her colors for her room as we speak. Day. Yeah. It's, it, that's awesome. That is awesome. And so like, is she pretty straightforward and blunt with you or is she kind of like that sneaky? So, and I, I guess I'll talk a little on my daughter. I like my daughter's to the point where she kind of is figuring out how to manipulate and she'll like drop little clues and she'll be extra sweet. She'll wait a little bit. And then all of a sudden she's like, you know, daddy, I was thinking. And then you're like, oh gosh. Right. You knew then, it was coming. Yeah. yeah. But you then other coming. kids Waiting can't even. Waiting for the other shoe to drop, so to speak. Exactly. Well, this one, she... Uh, now there's six years between her and the next oldest child. And I, I had these last two when I remarried. And so my husband wanted to have a little girl. Uh. And he said that when he had her, 
that she was going to be spoiled. And so anytime that she wanted something, she would just whine a little bit and he would say, Oh, what's the matter with daddy's <laughs> baby? Come here. Do you want a cookie? You know, she's nice. just rotten. And that one child is probably the work of all other nine put together. <laughs> and uh, I have, I have conversations with people and I always make them laugh and smile because I tell them, I said, see this particular child right here. She's the reason why there are mothers in the wild that eat their young. She drives me bananas. <laughs> she's that chick, but I love her. I wouldn't change her for the world. Right. It's, it's awesome when kids, and I'm going to say like when kids don't care, but I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way when they're just right. all in on being them and, and they're, they're uninhibited. It, it's so awesome, yes. man. It, it's so, again, it's just refreshing. I love the it spirit, is. you know? Uh, well, Hey, since we're talking about kids, we might as well, um, education, schools and stuff. I uh, mean, how was your online experience? And is that actually, are you running for a government office to get out of the house since homeschooling <laughs> <laughs> to try to duck it? Well, I'm that mom that packs the bag and they, they go with me pretty much everywhere. So the campaign trail is no different. Uh, some oh, of nice. them, the older ones, they actually said, oh, wow, mom, we're really going to miss um, being out on the campaign trail with you because I ran an 18 for uh, state Senate here locally. So oh, they know okay. the throes of what it looks like to be out on campaign life. Um, but, you know, actually my platform really talks a lot about education and having an equitable education. And mm. so, you know, with the pandemic going on, I have really seen and felt the extremes of the things that I've been talking about for a number of years. Now, my children have been through public education. They graduated from uh, public education. I was educated here in uh, the Cesar Rodney School District myself. And so I've really kind of watched the trends and how things have changed over the last two decades in education. And I got to tell you, um, there's a lot of things that I didn't find changed for the better. And Such as? one of the things that oh, had... Oh, no, I was just going to, you were probably just used to getting into it anyway, so I don't need to prompt it. But I was going to say, what are some of those trends that you noticed? Well, for instance, right now, um, we, we we're dealing with the discussions about how do we go back to school or do we go back to school in the fall and what is that going to look like? Well, my concerns are that here in Delaware, if you look at the achievement gap, it's very wide. We have an alarming statistic about how many students come out of our K through 12 education system here, not reading on grade level. And when you start to really kind of look at uh, how you assess where the breakdowns are in the, in the uh, education experience, one of the things has to deal with technology. So for instance, my older group of children, when they were going through school, PowerPoint wasn't a thing until they got into high school, but now the kids are expected to start learning about PowerPoint and doing PowerPoint presentations as early as first grade. Right. And so if you're familiar with that, that whole um, PowerPoint setup, you know that you have to have the type of computer set up so that it accommodates to be able to, to use it properly. Well, some people didn't have PCs at home yeah. that were equipped to be able to have that program installed. Yeah, and so they even, were already behind. Or even could know? afford it. 
like some of those things exactly. were add-ons. Like you could get a computer exactly. on the cheap and then all of a sudden your parents who are completely unplugged <laughs> have no That's idea. Right. They just think they got a great sale and they realize like it didn't come with windows. And now yes. they're like, Oh my God, what? It's 400 extra dollars. Yes. We can't yes. afford that. You're, you're making my point for me. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're seeing where those kinds of trends are to the detriment of that achievement gap. It, it's, it almost delineates between the haves and the have nots. Now, but when my- I was in the military, uh, I, I did aircraft maintenance and avionics. So I have a wealth of knowledge and electrical, mathematical, engineering was a field of study for me, undergrad. And so I was in a position to be able to kind of overhaul all of my technology to be able to support the online streaming platforms that they did when we shut down. But, you know, the kids that didn't have those things already set up in their homes, they were at a complete and total disadvantage. So not only did they not have the technology, some places here in in Delaware don't have broadband. So there were connectivity issues. And I can tell you that my elementary school children in their classrooms, there was about a third of the students that were not present and hadn't been present in the whole entire four months. Mm. So what's going to happen with those kids when we go back to school in the fall and we still are going to continue to try and have, you know, an online, yeah, virtual. maybe a hybrid or something, they're going to continue to be further behind. Yeah. And so I have real concerns about that. Let now me, my high school can, students- Can I pause you for a moment just to stay on that sure. topic? Because I think that's, that's something that I really think about a lot. Um, so there's a mandate that you go to school. If you skip school, you don't have your doctor's notes, truancy officer eventually, right? And it's it's a lengthy process, but it's a law, right? You have right? to attend. Now, during this pandemic, the kids who normally are forced to attend and then get services at school because it's the law, and at least the parents can say, I'm not going to jail for you. Like worst case scenario, a parent can literally be like, I'm not going to jail for you, boy. Get out and get to school. You know, like it's a great safety net to kick a kid out of a house who's trying to be like, man, I don't want to go to school. Well, is there a way, do you have an idea to make a Zoom meeting mandatory and try to apply truancy to online attendance, to assignment completion? How do you kind of get that accountability to, it's so much easier to get kids to do stuff when they're in the door. But to get Honestly, a kid to log it can't in. happen. It can't happen right? because if we, it, it would be a different story if every single household was set up to be able to support an online platform. Right. And so many of these kids that couldn't do that, they had paper packets at my children's elementary school, so they could go. Parents could go and pick up some of those things, and they could work independently on those things. But I don't know about your daughter, but you know, I have to stand over top of my children to ensure that the homework gets done. So I have to check and make sure that I know what the assignment was for that day and I check for completeness. And if it doesn't make it back to the school and in the grade book, you know, at least I have some kind of um, idea of what happened if they don't succeed academically. I own my piece of it as a parent, but you know, there, there are also households where um, mom or dad, or both are working during the day. And so what happens throughout the course of the day when they're supposed to be in their Zoom session at 9, 9.30, 12, 1 o'clock, and there's nobody at home to help them 
if there's a if it, if there's a technical issue. I mean, yeah. sometimes, or even remind them if a kid gets distracted because kids. Exactly. Lo- I mean, it's just what a kid does; they get distracted. Exactly, and so you know, those are the kinds of things that greatly concern me. I, I'm very blessed with my high schoolers; they uh, participate at the early college high school uh, through Delaware State University, and. One of the things that you get when you enroll your child in that program, there's one-to-one technology. So they were issued a laptop day one. And so it was a very seamless transition for them to go to the online platform because they already had everything that they needed to support that. So did you think you know, it was I, a, did you think it was as effective or did you feel like there was a little drop in the rigor and um, learning when they went online? Well, I know with the early college high school program, those teachers, um, they, they run a tight ship. I have to I have to give credit where credit is due. There were a couple of new teachers that I wasn't too jazzed about, but the ones that had been on staff for a while, uh, they managed it very well. It was a little different for some of them who weren't used to the Zoom environment. So, of course, you know, that you had the people who uh, snuck into the classroom and did some inappropriate things. So, you know, there's a learning curve <laughs> with Zoom. You got to figure out, you know, how to make it secure in there. Yeah. But once they uh, got over the hiccups of the environment, things went very smoothly. Uh, the, the kids had to not be in in their pajamas. They couldn't have oh, curlers wow. in their hair. They couldn't, you know, they had to be presentable Man. and they had to That's be a great seated point. at a desk or a table That's or a something that couldn't be in the bed. There were requirements for them and those are things that they could lose points on. So they were still graded throughout the whole time. It wasn't like, you know, that the, the is a beautiful marking idea. period where you didn't get credit or you didn't, you right. weren't graded on what you were doing with some of these other schools. They were graded the entire time. So they had, they had uh, a syllabus, they had assignments, um, they had to check uh their, their emails and their accounts to make sure that they were staying on, on course with their classwork. So, um, you know, again, my hat's off to that particular program. That is um, a marker for success and, and being able to do uh, the online learning successfully. But, you know, we have so many that just don't make the grade when it comes to online learning and our kids are just going to be in a terrible mess come the fall if we don't do something different man i i love what they did there with the dress requirements because i I did i did it with my daughter i'm like dude you're getting up and you're (laughs) getting changed for school and then you can stay on the kitchen table and you can do your assignments man but you're getting dressed like we're in school we change for school and it just sets a mentality of you're here to work i I love that i love that requirement i do love the requirement too of like dude you're you're not taking a zoom class in your in your bed under your blanket get up that's get up. (laughs) Like those are two real basic things. And so it's funny because I think the coming back, the coming back to me, it's hard for me to get on board with completely online for high school with the mindset of like, well, colleges can go online. So high schoolers should be able to, if they're going to be prepared for college, because a high school freshman is still a complete adolescent. There is, there is, you, you could, it's hard to find a high school senior that's mature. (laughs) <laughs> let alone let alone a freshman and sophomore. But I understand the argument of, hey, you're a teenager. You, you understand school. You've been doing it for nine years with kindergarten. Like it's going to be online. And I think that can be a little easier. The elementary and middle schools really do worry me, especially as you were talking about reading. 
I cannot imagine children learning how to read virtually and trying to organize the lessons and the logins. You can't just bump around your classroom and get to kids and touch base with them. You have to schedule actual meetings to teach these skills. And how do you organize that? Like, I can't wrap my mind around it. Well, you know, I think um, with the younger kids, just by virtue of them having technology like tablets, um, they become very familiar with, uh, you know, those different types of environments. And um, my kids, in in some regards, they can navigate uh, their tablets better than I can at times. So, uh, you know, I think that their familiarization with technology has enabled them to be resilient in that regard. Uh, but And then when you talk about reading and learning mathematical skills, I actually audited my children's Zoom rooms. So we sat and uh, learned together and it helped me out a lot. And I think I bet. Um, I've seen in years past, uh, we went, we, we moved from the old math. I'm, I'm doing some air quotes over here too. Yeah. I know you can't see, but you know, the types of strategies that are employed now in problem solving, um, it's a, it's a whole math concept. And so if you don't sit in those classrooms with your students, it's hard to help them when they get home and they need help with homework because you didn't have, um, the instruction that they had in class and they yeah. don't have textbooks like we used no to doubt. have. And, and you don't even you know, know how to ask them a question. Cause you could be saying the word like divide and they could have called it something else, something like similar else. groups yes. or something. And you're like, and then it takes you 20 yes. minutes to figure out how to even yes. talk to your kid about the topic. You and then it. by the you time you're it. there, it's like, <laughs> Oh, so you just wanted me to put them in a basket together. And you're like, Jesus, you yes, go. that's what I meant. Okay. It's there not you the go. Yeah. So, I mean, those in that regard, Actually, auditing the children's classrooms um, was a plus for me because when my child, now this is, we're talking about the 10-year-old, um, now she, she's one of the ones that is a drama queen. And if things don't go well for her, you know, she's, she's whiny and she's, she's going to disconnect and just say, I can't do this and I give up and she'll drop her head down on the desk. So we won't have any of that. So Missy, pick your head up and let's sit here and let's figure it out together. And right. having you know been able to see how they instruct the children was a plus. And That's so a great point with too. their particular classes, they actually recorded them. So if you missed the Zoom, you could go back and you could watch it again. And and for those parents who were working throughout the day, they could jump on and pull up the link later on in the day. Right. And as long as you did your little daily interaction, they knew that you participated and you would get a check for participation for that day. So, See, you know, some of it works and some of it's got its downfall, but, you know, we got to figure it out. And I, I, I agree with you about the kids being resilient. I was more going logistical with, if I give a whole group lesson in a class, I'll just basic number of 20. And then okay. if now I want to assess who's lost, who needs help, or even if I know specific skills for that kid to teach one-on-one, because a lot of learning has to happen individually because kids are very vulnerable. It's hard for them. They don't want to feel stupid. So right. you're able to do that so quick and on the fly in a classroom. But if, if you're in a Zoom and you have 20 kids so you have your lesson, you have your contents, and then it's like, okay, well then I guess every Tuesday at 10 o'clock and Thursday at one will be our one-on-one time where you get a 20 minute session with your teacher. Like, or, hey, I'm just gonna shoot you a link, jump on real quick, third grader, so we can make sure you get these three syllable words down. Right. Like, like, it just seems 
so it, it's completely inefficient. And it it's like, man, can it, could it work though? Is there an efficient way to make that happen with technology, with like um, almost like an artificial intelligent curriculum that like self-assesses kids when they um, do assignments? Oh, here's your weakness. Here's a lesson. True. You know, like I, I just wonder, is that, is that what we're headed towards? You know, I, I don't know if you recall, but I remember watching those futuristic movies uh, back when I was a teenager. And I remembered seeing like what the models of the cars would look like. And I was thinking to myself, we have these great big, old, long, bulky vehicles. There's no way they're going to be that small and compact. And I have, <laughs> I have fast forwarded to today and thinking back to those days, how I thought it was inconceivable and looking at today's model cars, they represent pretty much what they were forecasting yeah. 20 years ago. So, you know, I'm thinking about some of these movies that I've seen where, um, you know, we had, uh, they had the, the, captions of or the pictures of uh, the monitors on the wall yeah. and people talking you know through a virtual reality yeah. and it's FaceTime you know, I, it's I thought amazing. to myself that's not going to be around before I die and here we are yeah so you know I'm I think that the human spirit is able to adapt a lot more readily than sometimes we give it credit for it's just that you know people have a resistance to change and and when it's uncomfortable to change, sometimes it, it seems like it's a overwhelming and a daunting task that we can't do. But I think that after we kind of hammer out um, some of the details, I think that you'll probably see a trend where you'll have more of a hybrid type situation where education is concerned. Because, you know, for the foreseeable future, I really think that there are several pockets of people who are afraid to figure out what a new norm looks like. They're vulnerable. They don't want to come out. They don't want to be exposed. And until we get a good understanding of how to um, mitigate the, you know, the, the, the risks, whole the spread. COVID thing, um, you know, we got to be able to figure out how uh, we resume life without being afraid that we're going to catch, you know, this, this virus. Yeah. So, and that, um, I, it's funny. Cause I go to that too. Like who wants to be the guy that says, or the person that says, yep, coming back to school. And now you're tagged with that decision. And then a death occurs through contact through COVID right. spread that you can trace to that school. You are done. And you, if you're in a position to make that decision, you've most likely made your career like that. That's your career to get to that position, to make that decision. And I just, I'm, I'm really in my head again, thinking like, who's going to be like, yeah, man, we're all in, we're going normal. Let's go sports. Let's get kids in the class, teachers in there. And we're just going to power through like, and, yeah. and now a teacher who's an elder or any teacher actually, cause any, everyone can be susceptible. A, like a staff member dies, you know, like I, I just, I can't see it. So in my head I go to, it almost has to be hybrid or it has to be virtual because we don't even have a precedence to relay back to, right? Like we don't have a case study to make an informed decision and you bringing up the achievement gap. And it's really more of a, a poverty gap that needs to be yes. closed. I'm wondering what can, what would, or I guess what can government do to help close that gap to make virtual or online learning um, more accessible? Well, you know, 
I pondered this a great deal. And another point in my platform is about the socioeconomics. And so since you touched on poverty there a little bit, you know, when you look at um, one of my favorite illustrations is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And at the very bottom of that pyramid, the base is the physiological aspects of making sure that people have the basic needs. And as you achieve that base, then it gives you the opportunity to ascend to the pinnacle of the pyramid to self-actualization. And so, you know, I've always said that when you take care of the first things first, you, you set yourself up for the ability to be able to get these other things to fall in place the way they need to. And so, um, you know, just dealing with um, the cost of education um, here in the state of Delaware, you know, we're, we're among one of the highest per capita for our students spent in our education dollars. And you would think and, that that would correlate to results. And, you know, if, when you look at us in comparison against all of the other states, um, we're achieving at the lowest rate. So we're really not getting um, the best bang for our buck where education is concerned. And so if we if we just kind of walk that back a little bit and take a look at um, what we are actually spending um, on for our education dollars, you know, maybe we could start to look at this thing through a different lens and, and see that perhaps maybe um, we could redirect some of the funds to making sure that um, the underserved and the poor in, in our communities are afforded the same type of opportunities where technology is concerned and, and be able to um, secure them in a way to where they can engage in whatever this trend is towards online learning. So, you know, you, you got to kind of just take a step back from it and say, we have this underserved population that we have to get these resources to. Is it just it becomes, technology though, or are there other things that like shifting the money around you would try to focus on aside from, for a simplicity's sake, every kid goes with an iPad or every kid has a laptop? You know, in all fairness, when you buy in bulk, you can get those things at a pretty affordable rate. And I, and I would have to venture that um, we could conceivably put technology in the hands of those who are needing it. Um, at, a, at a pretty low cost when you consider how much you spend on AstroTurf at your, your football field. I mean, <laughs> it, it's all about, you know, where um, your priorities lie. And if we don't prioritize getting our children in a, in a position to where they can thrive in our education, then that's to our detriment. These are our leaders of tomorrow. And what we're putting into them, we're going to get out. And, but what else? So again, so let's say we get, you shift a little bit of money around and you get every kid with a laptop. And um, I know the broadband is not like an overnight thing. I, I honestly don't know how they expand broadband. I don't, I have no idea how that system works and like why in the state of Delaware, the size of Delaware that's so small, like internet's not available everywhere at some point. I guess we are really that country in some in some places. <laughs> in some places, but I know that um, I was I was having a discussion with someone earlier today and they were telling me that um, providers like Comcast came to the table and wanted to actually, you know, get that done back in 2014 and they couldn't get the the approvals, the authorizations and uh, you know, the money in place to 
to be able to do that. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, um, where are the priorities again? You know, what are we prioritizing over making sure that um, broadband is available? I mean, if you take a look at uh, programs, like, for instance, if you qualify for um, food stamps or free lunches or any of those kinds of things um, in the public assistance space, um, at one point, you were eligible to get uh, a cell phone with 500 text messages a month. I mean, there's there's no reason why, you know, we can't do something similar where uh, having broadband in place at a low cost is, is something that could be done. I mean, it, again, it's all about prioritizing things and, and where we lay uh, our dollar value to being able to address the things that are really meaningful to the impact of Delawareans. So, is that a um, state thing? So if Comcast wants to uh, lay wire or run wire, is that a state saying yes? Is that a county saying yes? Is that each town saying yes? Do you know how that works? I'm not exactly sure I'm going to do a deeper dive in it and um, I'll circle back with you and get you the answer on that for certain. But I know that there were, there were conversations where, you know, there, there were uh, people who were wanting to have that take on that role and get it done. So, you know, why haven't we? And it's, it's boggling to my mind that we're in this, space that we're in right now and the hindrance to the education is accessibility to broadband. I, I can give you a for instance, um, McIlvain out here I was talking with one of the teachers, that's in the, that's the kindergarten um, hub for the Cesar Rodney School District. Um, she was sharing with me um, how the kindergarten classes are dealing with this because I'm like you, I'm thinking to myself, four and five-year-olds, are they going to be able to learn anything at all in an online learning environment? Yeah. So I, I was just wondering, you know, what that looked like for, for a kindergarten teacher. That's got to be tough. And she was telling me that, um, that that school is located in Magnolia. And, you know, there are some areas out there where I can't even get cell phone coverage. You know, I'm in Never Never Land. If I have Verizon, <laughs> I might be able to get some coverage somewhere. If I have T-Mobile, I might be able to get it somewhere else. And then there are just dead spots that, you know, only Sprint covers and AT&T. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, there's just, so there's, depending on where you are, you might be able to um, get the broadband signal. You might not. And what they did is they had a hotspot in uh, the school. And so they had an expectation for the parents that they gave, um, the, the uh, Chromebooks too, that they would put their child in the car and drive to McIlvain and sit out in the parking lot with their yeah, child man. to be able to do distance learning. Wow. Like talk, talk about it. Talk about it. Well, I, right. But like, if that's your only option, it's amazing. I guess you go like to the McDonald's parking lot and use their guests, like their free Wi-Fi. <laughs> but like that. If See, you... but I mean, we're talking about kids that, um, had to have transportation to get to school in the yeah, first no, place. Yeah, no, exactly. And talk about what parent is going to be able to take that much time out of the day yeah. to be able to, and just if you're working. I mean, it's so many extra steps that take away from, the, it almost is like too many options to say no, or too many, um, they're not exactly excuses, but too many ways to get out of it to do it consistently. I mean, right. you might be able to do it one or two days in a row, but if, are you going to, you're also all that drive time whether it's a half hour or an hour there and back out of your day, like that eats away at your day consistently. I agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. 
Yes. So we, I mean, we have some hills to climb, but I think that the more we talk this through, and I'd, I'd really like to see there be more inclusive conversations that bring parents to the table. Um, I haven't received my invitation. Have you to talk about um, what we're supposed to do when we go back to school? Uh, I, I missed my invitation. I don't know where it is, but I know that they sent out. Um, <laughs> you liked that, didn't you? So you know, I know they sent out a survey to the teachers to ask them how they felt. And this um, this survey that they got um, was kind of um, misleading in their answers and how it was it was translated. And so. Um, for instance, uh, they would ask a teacher, uh, do you feel um, safe and in, in coming back to school full time? Well, there was no way to say, um, I would if you had this, that, and the other thing uh, in place. Black and white, it was right? just a yes or a no. Yeah. Exactly. And so um, I know that there's some pushback right now from some of the teachers who want to figure it out and figure out how. Um, we can we can get our children back in a school setting safely. You know, I, there are a lot of people who are, are willing to shoulder the responsibility, like you said, of being that person that would be the fall guy if um, they make a decision and it turns out not to be, um, you know, a, a good result necessarily. Yeah, so, it, you know, there are some people who are, are willing to shoulder that responsibility. And I think for those students, um, you know, it, it's a conversation that parents have have to have among themselves and decide what's best for them and their family. I have children. Um, my, some of my older children were asthmatic. Um, they would be more of the vulnerable ones. They would be right. the ones that I would probably say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to let this particular child um, do distance learning, but the other ones that might be needing the in-class instruction, if they were going to have a, a A and B rotation, you know, with the kids in some form or fashion, I would be inclined to let those go. We just need to put those options in the parents' hands and let them make the best decision for them and their family. What a logistical God. And I, I've been trying to cut down on my cursing, but it just seems like a logistical, logistical clusterfuck that I can't wrap <laughs> my mind around. Cause if you think about the planning that has to come into this, right? Yes. So if, if we just took an, a round numbers to make it easy, a thousand kids in a high school, Right. And you have no idea what percent of them are going to show up every day. And here's the thing. If a teacher is teaching kids in person, they do not have the ability to then teach those kids online. So if you want to spread kids out, it's not like you could go 500 kids in, 500 kids out, and then the 500 kids, we're going to spread out like it's normal. So our class size is in half. Because if you do that, then the online kids get completely ignored while they're online. So then does it go to, well, now teachers can opt out and now we just hope that the percentage of teachers and the certified, the, the areas of certification match up with what the students who have opted out and need. I like it. My mind goes nuts on the Excel spreadsheets trying to figure that. And then Lord help you. If by October you change your mind, what are you going to yeah. do? What are you going to like? You're going to make a commitment for six months. <laughs> like I, I can't, I, I can't, I'd be so interested to hear the people who are thinking on these different boards, how that, how far they go down the roads and like right. how many plans, like, do they just have files? Are there 12 different plans where <laughs> they're like, Hey man, when we hit this fork in the road, here's our plan to go right. Here's our plan to go left. Oh yeah. Now there's another fork in the road, plan to go right, plan to go left. I, I think that we just have to, um, figure out what is going to be the deployable strategy 
go ahead and roll it out and then adjust and adapt as you know we, we hit those hurdles and you we can't we can't just do nothing i mean we have to do something that is going to um put our kids in a position to be able to continue with um their education so yeah. you know again i would i would seriously like to see uh there be some more um voices at the table um, and having that discussion it can't just be people talking about educators and not having the educators there and it can't just be people talking about the parents and not have the parents there so i think that that group that is having that conversation needs to be expanded to be more inclusive to get a better picture of what the needs need to be so and this podcast is not going to air immediately and who knows what the covid data is going to be like when it airs Right. But right now, what are we, Monday, uh, 7 o'clock, July 27th, what would what would be your suggestion? If you're on that table, what are you laying out as like, hey, here's what I think, this is what I think we should do moving forward? Well, I think that what I would do is I would give that same bird's eye view that I just gave you. And I would I would say the same things that if if there are a set of children that absolutely need to be able to participate in that day let's figure out what that number looks like and then let's figure out how we accommodate that number and then move on to you know the next basket of of kids that may be able to handle the distance learning that you you feel excuse me don't necessarily um need to be in the classroom because they they are vulnerable so then we then we figure out what that is. And then we figure out what the number is that's in the middle that's kind of in between that could go either way. I think one of the conversations that I've heard is that um, there might be an A and a B class so that, you know, every other day there might be that group of kids in the classroom setting. They would have it set up so that, you know, it's, it's a, a streaming. So the people who are not in class physically that day, those students are on the Zoom and uh, they have it set up pretty well to where, you know, you can raise your hand and interact. It, it just becomes a balancing act for the Man. teacher at that point yeah. on how they instruct. It might be that you have to get somebody that's a support person to come in the classroom and be able to manage the technology while you know the, the teacher is instructing um, you know we have some paraprofessionals that are in the classroom and certainly if you're if you're working on a reduced amount of kids being in the classroom settings maybe some of the teachers you know could pair up and, and address it that way um, but you know there are a lot of people who are um, articulate in this area you bring the teachers in you get a think tank you you do what you have to do to try and figure out what that strategy looks like and I just really feel like um, we have to have those conversations and um, be able to mitigate the circumstances. We can't afford I'm, to not do anything. I'm just so curious how, what is the plan to get the accountability for online learning and holding kids? Because if kids don't have, if most anyone, if you don't have any skin in the game, you're not going to care as much. Well, it's very true. easy if, you, if you're not being held accountable for something as simple as keeping your room clean. Why would you clean your room? Just inherently, your kid's going to leave it dirty. <laughs> so like the accountability online variables, I'm just so curious to figure out what happens with that. And uh, especially with the kids who most need to be in schools for those um, achievement gaps. 
Right. Well, you know, like I said, those children are the ones that are the highest on, on my level of consideration because you, you're going to get in a situation here shortly to where these children are already um, a year behind in their learning. So what are we going to do? Are we going to um, just push them through the system like so many have over the years where, you know, you're just essentially getting them out the door and saying we've graduated this class. Are you really going to um, be looking to um, identify the ones who just are not on grade level and um, recycle them or what have you? I know that's um, it's not a nice thought. I mean, nobody wants to be retained in the current grade, but yeah. um, the only other alternative is to you know push these kids out with a high school diploma that essentially is not a benchmark it's of invalid. what they've achieved in that 13 years. So yeah, it um, seems you know, so. I'm sorry to cut ahead. you off. Um, and just for listeners, we do not have any um video. It's just straight audio, so we can't read like body language to try to interject. But it it almost goes back to me with the funding of if part. If part of your school rating and part of your funding is determined by your graduation rate, you're incentivized to massage those numbers to get kids to graduate, you know, because you're penalized for being strict and holding them accountable. And, and, And it's one of those things where I don't know what the right answer is, but I definitely know that the accountability of graduation rates encourages passing through a lack of meeting or mastery of a standard. You're absolutely correct. I remember a number of years back um, having those conversations with um, some of the teachers um, and, and they were saying that, you know, they are, they are rated and their proficiency as a teacher um, based off of how these children scored on some of the standardized tests. And I thought to myself, you know, there, there are kids in my house and out of all 10 of my kids, you know, there are some that, that were good test takers and there were some that weren't so good, but they had a mastery of the material. And if you sat down and have a conversation with them, they could tell you um, better than they could on a, a test. But, you know, I think it's really unfair that we are establishing those kinds of standards. Um, and, and you certainly have to have some kind of standard. Yeah, because you got to have accountability. Yeah, exactly. You, you got you to gotta hold a right. measurement somehow because if not – you, I just again, open you know, up that's, that's one of those things where um, you have um, you an experimental like time to figure it, you know, figure those things out and what yeah. works. But there are people's um, children that are in jeopardy of, of not doing well while we're figuring it out. So that's the, that's the downside. Of it. And I know you're going more um, for the state level, but I, I like in my head, I don't know. Can the state come out and say something like, a mandatory login of four hours a day to a virtual blank. So you know how kids have to be in school. I think it's like 180 days. And again, you have your absences and truancy, but you could almost convert that to hours online where you're like logged in or something. But at the same time, you're like, is that a state decision or is this really just more of a, you've got to trust your local people because they're the ones who actually are in contact and able to conversate with all the stakeholders and it changes. Wilmington's different than Seaford. True. So True. I, I, well, it makes me know, wonder. 
like I was telling you before, with the early college high school, there was a requirement for them to be in those classes. And right. they they could see if you were in the class and you couldn't, um, like we're having this conversation and you can't see you know, my face or, or what have you, or the listeners can't see my face. But the teachers in, in their classrooms, that was a requirement that you had to have the video on right. and they had to physically see you sitting in tune with uh, the classwork to get credit for that day. Otherwise, they were marked absent. And then um, as a parent, if they were absent from their class, I had to write a note. So it, it operated the same as if yeah, they like were a in a physical classroom. So you certainly can you know, put some, um, some rules in place that would make sure that you know the, the child participates and it might be that like you you know we talked about before that you you were at work and you couldn't really um interact with the live session but you have the ability to record on zoom and so you can go back and you can play that day's uh lesson yeah. and then there'll be some questions that you answer so that you get counted present for that day's classwork. So I think, you know, we, we can definitely figure it out. It's just a matter of, of having the wherewithal of having those um, types of conversations to make it work, but we have and, to. Man, and I really think we got to, as a mentality, whatever, cancel culture, wokeness, all, all, all this, like, th- this, this gotcha type of mentality, we've yes. almost got to understand, like, dude, it's really crazy. Can we just work with each other? <laughs> Can we just right. be decent? Can we understand? And then at the same time, it's like, well, then people will take advantage. And it's, do they want to take advantage? Or in the most parts, at least educationally, don't, I would almost, I would go out on a very, I don't know, high ledge and say, I'm almost positive all parents want their children to be smart and do well. <laughs> so like, most if that's not, do. yeah, right. So like, if that's not happening, the vast majority of parents are actually caring that their child is successful and want to try to help in the in the best way they can. I'd say the vast majority. So it's just like, man, when stuff's not working, can we not be upset and blow up Facebook and send all kinds of crazy emails? Can we just figure out how to make it work? What is needed? Let's solve. Let's not like let, let's not just randomly post. Let's solve. Right. Man, so and that was a, a lot. And for so for education technology, trying to reduce that, um, technology gap specifically with broadband and, uh, not a one-on-one, um, initiative, but something similar to that. Is there anything else about education that you wanted to talk about? Um, I just want to make sure that where the education is concerned that, uh, we have a program in place that supports both, uh, career and college readiness coming Mm. out of high school. I want to make sure that for the students that um, don't want to go to college, that they have a a viable pathway to the trades. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen here in in my local school district is that if you're interested in pursuing something in the trades, um, a vocational education is always an option, but there's a limited amount of available slots for those kids to go. And so... Back in my day, I'm going to go back down that road. You know, we had home ec, we had shop, we had um, all all kinds of different things that gave us options, and, and it wasn't so laser focused on going to college. Yeah. Man. So you know, again, I think that we need to revisit some of those types of things and make sure that um, we are incorporating um, strategic strategic plans for our kids that 
want a, a viable path to the to the trades and be able to um, make that readily available. I know that there have been some things that um, have rolled out, but I think that we we could do a better job of expanding it further. So, and I, I'm even though I get long winded, I don't I don't mean to be, but this was one of the crazier things that's happened by me doing this podcast. So a former student, Shai Wan, um, is now I believe 22 came on the podcast and he hit me with a question that I thought was beautiful. He said, how long did it take you to become a teacher? I'm like four years. And how much money did you make after, you know, four years of college? And I was like, I think it was like 40 grand a year. He's like, yeah. And how much did you have to pay for college? And I told him, I think I went to UAD. So it was like 10 grand a year. Now I was also in the national guard. So I had, um, the GI bill, so I didn't pay it all, but I'm basically like probably cost me 40 grand. I did two years at Dell tech, a couple years UD. He was like, all right, Hey man, I went to school for four weeks, learned how to drive a truck, and I made more money than you did after four years. He was like, so tell me why. I hate school. He was like, I hate to read. I'm not stupid, but I just don't enjoy it. So tell me why everybody keep telling me I'm a failure if I don't go to a four-year school to learn some stuff that I don't want to do that's just going to make me in debt. How come I just can't go learn to drive a truck for four in four weeks, and now all of a sudden I get to be my own boss? I'm looking to buy my own truck. He's like, I'm, I'm about to start my own company and I'm 22. You would have just been graduating. And I was like, dude, that's a, like it's, and in my head, I'm like, yeah, benefits, sick pay. I'm not dependent on my labor. You know, I also have more upward mobility. Whereas I get, as I earn more credits, I gain more years. Um, I make more money, you know, but it's a super valid point. And he was a kid who went to Sussex tech. Um, and he was bene- he benefited from that trade school of, dude, you can earn money. You don't have to go to a college to earn money and make a career. And there's nothing wrong with it. You don't need to feel There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And, you know, when you think about the alarming number of um, kids that go to college and then they get a degree that's not marketable, they can't even leverage that debt they've amassed from, you know, school loans. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's something that we definitely have to um, encourage as an alternate pathway um, especially to people who really have no desire to go to college. So um, that's one of the things that I would like to see happen. And it speaks you know, to the equity of education, being able to get the best experience um, out of your education um, while you're going through high school. Yeah, and it, it also makes me think about the achievement gap aspect. Because if some kids don't grow up with an enjoyment of books and reading, right? If you're not growing up in a home with a lot of books, but you're growing up learning all sorts of other intelligence, maybe you're just hanging out in the yard all day with your dad and he's messing with a car or or your uncle or whoever. So you're like, dude, this is a nice life. It's chill. I want to learn how to fix things. But then you're measured by a test that's preparing you for college. And you're like, I got no plan on going to college. So now all of a sudden you're constantly being told you're inadequate. You're not up to standard. What does that do for your self-esteem and mental health? Oh, it drops it to nothing. Right. So and now what's your incentive to try on a test? It's the fifth time you've taken it because now you're in seventh grade or eighth grade. And you're like, dude, I always fail this thing. Why am I going to keep yeah. trying? <laughs> and you're like, absolutely right. Of, I agree with you. You yeah. won't get any argument with yeah. me on that and, at all. And I think that's part of why that achievement gap can expand. Now, if you were able to say college and career readiness, well, all right, man, so you're not into reading. Cool. Um, what's your logic puzzle? Great. Let me see how your mind works. Hey, man, you your, your mind is proficient at thinking. There's plenty of logical thing, like plenty of logical puzzles out there. Great, dude, you know how to think. Cool, you're good. You're a winner. And then all of a sudden the kid's like, wait, I'm, I'm good? 
And it's like, yes, you are. You're good. What does that do for a kid? You know, it, it, it'd be a real interesting shift instead of measuring college readiness and making kids feel like they're up standard or below standard on it. If it was more of just like a logic or a thinking readiness. I agree. You know, nice dude. Um, and I'm, and it's funny. I did not think we were going to speak about education for almost 45 minutes. Yeah. Right. But I I could talk about education and the deficits and the benefits and, um, you know, all the downsides and upsides to being able to educate our children in the right way forever. I mean, like I said, I've got 10 children and education has been something, um, that is a mainstay in my household. So we can definitely talk about that forever. I, this will be the last thing because I don't know if forever would be the best amount of time to use on education. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm interested because you had brought up, and I did not know this, um, per capita, did you say, I forget where you say Delaware ranked on a per capita spending per child. Yeah, we're we're among the highest in the nation on what we spend to educate our children. And I don't know if you've, if you've been able to see a breakdown of the budget and like follow those numbers, have you? Well, I'm a numbers girl. I was uh, educated through Wilmington University. I have a master's degree in business with a concentration in finance. So I like to see the numbers. Um, You can't argue with them. And uh, one of the things that I have been able to look at is that, you know, there are differences between what's on one set of ledgers and versus another. So there's there's inconsistencies as to how, you know, those numbers actually um, come out. Um, That's one of the things that I'd be very interested in doing a deeper dive in and getting some answers for the disparities. But, um, you know, for the for the most part, uh, when you, if we were able to um, act as oversight into some of these things, and, and there's there's only but so much that government delves into managing, you know, there's no micromanagement in some spaces. So, um, for instance, when you look at uh, the books. Um, I used to be employed with the Department of Labor for Veterans Employment and Training Services, and we acted as oversight for the federal dollars that came into the state of Delaware to service our veterans outreach programs. So they had a quarterly reporting system. So every three months, you had a real-time view of what those spending habits were, and if you weren't meeting um, the requirements to continue to receive those pots of money, you didn't get it. So could you just imagine... If we did that with some of our other things, um, education, whatever uh, space on the budget and the state budget there is, to be able to say we have measurable outcomes. You know, if we're not meeting these benchmarks over this time, there's got to be some accountability for that. So, you know, I would really like to see more of that happen across the whole state budget um, in general is to make sure that we have some accountability for our spending here. I think that would change the conversation um, enormously when it comes down to what we're spending our money on. Oh, I mean, I would say a hundred percent, right? Like if people know where money's going, you're like, and it's funny that you brought up like the AstroTurf field or whatever, but I mean, that could be like, wait, so we got class sizes of 30 and how much did that thing cost? Well, how many teachers would that have been? Or could, could we have built an additional classroom? I mean, I did hear you say that that you served um, at some point. And so I remember when I was in in the early 90s, um, 
in order for us to close out one fiscal year, we couldn't carry over so much in our budget or else we would lose our funding for the next year. So it has been suggested that um, there have been some of those purchases to make sure that they secured their funding for the next year. So, oh, yeah. So I'm, know, a, I'm a huge um, fan of The Office. I don't know. Do you ever watch The Office, Michael Scott? Oh Lord, my husband watches that to nauseum. I, so, you know, it took me a long time to be able to latch <laughs> on to the humor in that thing. Dude, it is oh, so. Gosh. Yeah, but I have watched it. it Go is, ahead. It's a cult. It's 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 just so stupid funny. Um, so there's <laughs> there's this one Oscar the accountant. There's basically a budget overage in the office of mm-hmm. like five thousand dollars, and he's trying to explain to Michael Scott what happens if you leave that money in the account. And he's like, mm-hmm. so if mommy knows that it only takes $5 to run the lemonade stand, but you asked for $10, the next time you open up the lemonade stand, mommy will only give you five. And you right. don't know if you need 10. And like the light bulb goes off in Michael and he's like, we got to spend the money. <laughs> yes. But it's weird that it has to be that way because there's ebbs and flows and it almost yeah. encourages overspending or like unsustainable spending because your right. income's not always going to go up. But if well, you're see, spending, always is, has to stay. And I, I had this conversation with somebody recently. Instead of doing it every year, if you if you were to look at an average over a three-year period and then assess the next three years based off of the previous three years, I think it works a little bit better because then you can, um, you might, you might fluctuate, you know, 10,000 this year, negative and 10,000 positive the next year, but in two years, it averages out. So you end up having, you know, that, that, that same figure to work with for the next um, period moving forward. So, Hmm. I mean, it's all about how you craft the policy and how you can um, deal with the numbers in a way that it, it is a clear indicator of being able to have a sustainable amount from year to year. So I think that's kind of the way that we need to go about that. And now I'm really interested in uh, your outlooks on business, knowing your um, business degrees. Okay. I do have a meeting at 730 that I have to jump off of here. Oh, no way. Oh, my God. I wish I would have known that earlier. Okay. That's okay. That's okay. Oh, my gosh. All it's going to be is I mean, I can go through those, um, and we can talk a little bit about it for the next uh, 12 minutes, if that's good. (laughs) (laughs) Darn. Yeah, man. Go. That's okay. Well, as a small business owner, uh, I have um, had to uh, crawl under rocks to access resources um, or access resources to be able to uh, start a business, grow a business. As a veteran, uh, I, I tapped into some of those resources. Um, I went through the Women's Business Center and tapped those resources, and it was really a very arduous process to get my business up and running. I have a a general contracting company. So just getting in in that realm um, was was difficult all by itself because, you know, you have to develop your your name, your reputation, you got to... Just build slowly. Yeah, and so you're also what, in debt for the first, like, don't you not make any money in a business typically for like the first couple of years? Yeah, that's true. Especially <laughs> if you're if you're buying your equipment and trying to just get, you know, up to a place where you're breaking even. I mean, you have your liability insurance and you have all kinds of, you know, costs for the overhead. So there is um, an enormous amount of startup costs and, and you don't really see um, a, a positive cash flow for, for some time. But um, one of the things that 
you have to realize about the state of Delaware is that we no longer have big business here. I mean, the, the plants have closed and we just have to really heavily rely on our small business to be able to support our employment structure here. And so if we don't spend some time making sure that we have the proper infrastructure to keep our businesses thriving um, here in Delaware. I mean, we just we just came off of all of these shutdowns and, and there are a faction of businesses that will never open their door again. They, they're done. Okay, and then we have those struggling ones that are still trying to nurse it along. And, uh, you know, they've taken some of these uh, loans that were available through the SBA if they were able to qualify for them uh, to kind of keep them moving forward, you know, but there, there's going to be um, a conversation about our economy that we're going to have to have people who are business minded at the table and at the helm and at our leadership to really be able to effectively navigate our, our way to a healthy economy period. I mean, we really were not all that healthy even before COVID. I mean, there were there were things, um, you know, we had a we had a budget surplus in, in years past and then we're in deficit and, you know, we, we really have to look at a plan that moves us forward so that we are no longer in the bottom of the nation, um, you know, uh, for, for being able to get people employed. I mean, we have higher really? unemployment rates than most. I didn't um, know that. And, and when you look at the trends across the nation um, over the last couple of years, um, our numbers have, have improved. I mean, we, we saw lower unemployment numbers than we have um, historically, but we didn't, we didn't come down as much as some did across the nation. So you have to kind of, you have to kind of look at what we need to do here to have um, more job creation to give people jobs where they can earn better and be able to uh, support their families without having to work, you know, two and three jobs to be able to make ends meet at the end of, of the day. Yep. So, so you know, yeah, those are you... the kinds of things that I want to see in our, in our discussions um, where we, we invite um, more uh, people uh, to have those conversations about how we move our economy forward in a healthy way here. And so do you have, and I guess it's a lot of legislation, but I don't know how much of it you can get to like read how much, I guess all you can read all legislation, but there's meetings and there's people who can just help you to know what's going on. You can ask questions. And when you're running, you don't have access to those kind of people and that kind of ease of information. But I'm curious when you had brought up infrastructure for business, for business, do you have a couple of things that you're like, Hey man, if we just did this, it would help. Like job creation, earning more, those are more like um, broad topics. I'm just wondering like specifically, what could, a, what could a government elected official do? Well, here's one of the things. I, I have often sat at roundtable discussions about small business and what we could do to help our small businesses um, become more successful. And one of the things that uh, I made a suggestion for years ago was that uh, we have a, a one-stop shopping experience for people who are in business or are wanting to be entrepreneurs. Um, with technology being the way it is, you can go on your phone to your Google search bar or whichever search engine you use, and you should be able to type in, I want to start a business in Delaware. I want to grow a business in Delaware. I need working capital in Delaware. And all of those things should point to one site 
hmm. where all of those resources should be housed. It would it would solve a lot of problems. So, for instance, when I was out shopping for products on how to um, get my business started, um, where I should go, who I should use, who I should use to incorporate, how I should go about doing X, Y, and Z to get into this business, I didn't find the same two answers in any place that I went to. Oh, wow. So the, so the disinformation that's out there is amazing. And so that was frustrating because I would go one place and they would say, oh, that's not right. Don't do it that way. And then I would go someplace else and they would say, well, that's kind of right, but you really need to go this route. And so what, what you could do is you could have all these different entities. I'm trying to remember what the number was. It was like there were like a hundred and something odd resources that you could go to for that particular thing that I was doing. Hmm. And so if you had all of those companies that offered those types of same like services housed in, in one stop shopping experience, that would be you trusted. could go down and you could essentially see that this business has five star rating. This one has four, this one has three, and this is the one that you never want to use. But <laughs> as a part of being in that umbrella, there would be some metrics and you could, yeah. you could see, you know, where all those resources were in one place. So that's one of the things that I would like to see done. There's no reason that um, we can't do that in the state of Delaware. We have the IT infrastructure it, and, and they've talked about it. And, and when I've talked to people about it, they said it's just a matter of that being something that has priority and has mm. been given the authority and the blessing to be able to develop. Dude, that's a great, you know, I didn't think about it and I'm not, um, I don't know. I don't know if this podcast would qualify as a business, but if I wanted it to, yes, I have no idea what I would do. And exactly. like, it would be awesome if the state of Delaware had vetted and basically made like a checklist. Hey, Sean, you want to start a business? Great. There you go. What's your first and, and that's step? that's what they do. And I mean, then it's if, like if just a bunch of it, links. It'd be so, they, it'd be so nice. Right. There would be an interactive environment and, it, and you know, the, algorithm would be set up so that yeah. when you come in, you would take like a, a brief little um, need survey yeah, right? and then it would start pointing you to different options. Yeah. You would just click. It would be like, Oh, podcast. Yes. Great. Are you owning, are you owning yes. a building? Okay. Well then you don't need insurance. Skip that step. Right. Yes. Like, I mean, how would, great would that be? Oh my God. It would, it would, I'd tell you what, and again, going for shy and I would really encourage people to listen to his episode. It was, it was real it was just very insightful into how a 22 year old African American thinks and is entrepreneurial entrepreneur, right. but he would eat that up if he knew, Oh wait, that's all I got to do. I, I just answer these questions, walk through and now I can incorporate and I can have my business instead of like having to post on Facebook. Yo, how, how do you get insurance for something? I mean, it, it would be, Oh man, that's a beautiful idea. Who'd you steal that from? I created that idea and I'm sharing it with you and see, I'm, I, I know that I can um, own that because they did an article um, and I was interviewed. So I, I definitely can say that was my baby, but you know, it's not about, it's not about, it's not about credit. ownership of an idea. I would rather share my ideas with people and let them prosper from it than to be worried about who gets credit for it. But you know, those are just some of the things that I feel are examples of some of the things that we can do in, in these various um, sectors of, of Delaware's, um, political landscape to be able to get um, the needle to move my 
um, my campaign slogan is so that all may prosper. And um, it's, it's all about giving people access, ease of access to resources that help them help themselves. I love that. I mean, that, I feel like that at the essence, aside from protecting an infrastructure, like that's a great function of government right there. Let me give you resources to help you help yourself. And I love the small business aspect because it's so it's so personal and you so reap what you work for. Like you That's get to true. the harder you're working, the better your idea, man. There it's not limited, right? Your earning is not limited. And I've it's it's refreshing. Man, that's that's a I'd never even thought about that. That's a great idea. That's why we need to have political outsiders that have real life experience. I mean, I have the t-shirt, the trophy, the certificate, um, <laughs> you know, the medal for having to overcome hardship. I've been hurt by a lot of, um, you know, policy here in Delaware. And so when I come out and I really talk about things, you know, just to circle back to where we started, it comes from my personal experience and being able to talk about those things. When you can actually have a testimony that you've been there and you've done that, and this is what you use to overcome it, you know, that kind of gives um, an outsider the box perception of how we should be approaching some of the problems. You can't have these people that have been in office for decades bring new innovative ideas. They don't have them. Yeah, well, because they haven't had to go through them. And good yeah. grief, with 10 it's children. Their experience. You're absolutely right. And even, and it's silly, but you have grown children that have not grown up with you being a politician. So they're living all sorts of different lives and coming back and expressing those to you, which gives you even more perspective. Yes, on all does. sorts of different topics, you know, it, yes, it's, it it's, a, it's, it's like a informational pyramid scheme or a perspective pyramid it's scheme. Lovely. Somebody, somebody told me I had my own focus group right yeah. under my roof and they were absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. And then good Lord, like just seeing them with their friends and stuff and then interacting yes. with the families and the different peer groups. Cause not every kid's into the same thing. So you're at a sporting event with one kid, a musical event with another kid, an art thing with another kid. And you're like, just hearing, I can't imagine how much you hear from just, again, regular people who are affected by the policies made yes. for our state. Yes. Man, I just realized that I had never asked you why you were running for lieutenant governor. Um, aside from the fact that you don't, like, as governor gets to pick your lieutenant governor, which has always been weird to me. Um, why why do you choose lieutenant governor as the position to run for? Well... In my 2018 run uh, for state senate, um, I really wanted to serve in a capacity that uh, had something to do with creating policy. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually was involved in 2016 with uh, running the campaign for the candidate on the GOP side in 2016 for lieutenant governor. So I had an opportunity to really get a bird's eye view of the responsibilities of that job. And uh, you know, one of the main responsibilities is to make sure that we inquire on the health of the governor, because God forbid anything that would happen to the governor, the lieutenant governor would be next in the line of succession. Right. And so, um, you know, that's certainly one of the roles. Um, also, and uh, that office, you preside over the Board of Pardons. And I think that that is a critical piece uh, when it comes to giving people second chances. Uh, after people have done their crime and served their time, 
we want to make sure that, especially with our youngsters, the ones that were, you know, around 18, 19, 20, 21, their early 20s, yeah. and they make that error in judgment yeah. and they come out. And I've seen instances where those folks have gone on after rehabilitation and uh, going back to school where they've actually pulled themselves to the place to where they want to get a professional job and they need to be able to get uh, that felony conviction off of their record in order to secure a good employment opportunity. And after you've done your time and you've paid back your debt to society and you have figured out which way is up and, and, stabled yourself on a, on a path towards success. Yeah. Those are the people that are certainly deserving of a second chance. And uh, here in, in Delaware, you know, we have some very uh, alarming statistics, especially as it pertains to communities of color, where you see that um, there's a 23% uh, marker of the population but yet there's a 65% presence of people of color in the prisons. And then you see the next statistic where after those folks have served their time and come back out into society, within three years, there's another 65% um, recidivism rate. And those are the people who reoffend and go right back into the system. So clearly, you know, there's some things that are going on in um, that piece that if those folks that come out and really do something to overcome, um, the odds, those people deserve to have a second chance and we should be able to uh, have some wisdom and listening to the circumstances and being able to grant people that opportunity. So that's something that's important to me is the aspect of Lieutenant Governor. I've never, just to emphasize and actually just think about that for a moment, I've never been in the position to screen applications. I do know that most applications have that convicted of a felony, convicted of a crime portion. Um, Yeah, that's that's something that I don't know if I'd thought about that at any time recently, that man, you commit a crime when you're, or you get convicted of a crime when you're early. (laughs) And 18 to 21, it's almost like you get caught making the stupid choice because I'm sure there's so many people who have done things and gotten away with it just by grace of God, chance, whatever. But having your future limited then for your next 40 years of earning potential? Exactly. That is devastating. It is. And so, you know, for, you know, just that reason alone, I think it's important that, uh, you know, we take a lot of those factors into consideration to give people an honest shot at a second chance. So, you know, that's something that's important to me. Um, I've seen a lot of disengaged youth, especially in the area where I live. And, uh, you know, even, even some of my own children have um, succumbed to being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong people um, and, and have been guilty by association of things. So, right. you know, that's, that's where you should have the opportunity to make a mistake, but it shouldn't cost you your entire life. So, you know, again, that that's important to me is to be able to give somebody a second chance who has earned um, their way back. Is that like an, is that an annual application process where like once a year you 
sit down and you go through all the files or would it be just as a case by case, they just appeal to you and then you would check out the case? Well, when a person applies for a pardon, um, you know, there is a, there is a moment where that board is convened in order to hear um, the applications that have come forward. So um, depending on, you know, what the bulk of uh, applications for pardons and here in the state of Delaware, um, in order to have an expungement, um, you have to meet certain criteria. So it might be that uh, you did something, um, and as long as you didn't take a plea or plead guilty, then you can have your record expunged. But if you pled guilty or you took, you know, a, a, a null process where you didn't argue, um, then you have to go through the procedure of getting a pardon first before your record can be expunged. So say, for instance, you go and you make an application for anything and it requires um, a criminal background check. Check, uh, You know, those things can come up on, uh, you know, your, your criminal background check and it could just be minor things. And you might just want to clean up the minor things. But if you have something where you actually pled guilty to, excuse me, you have to go through a pardon before you can get your record expunged. So it's a process. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize uh, what that road back to whole and being a productive citizen and, you know, taxpaying and contributing member of society. You know, sometimes that doesn't happen um, easily. And if we don't um, have someone who's willing to say, hey, you know, this person um, has has meritoriously made their way back to deserving a second chance. I want to be that person who would um, certainly have that in consideration to be able to um, make people um, productive again in our society. So that's important to me. Yeah, and you, um, you got to wonder with the people who are reoffending, how much of that is they feel like there is no option to go upward in just through employment. How can I better my chances through employment? So it makes it a little easier to reoffend because you're like, well, there's no use anyway. Well, and, and that speaks to the point. Um, and also, you know, we have to kind of uh, take a, a harder look at the rehabilitative piece as it pertains to people who are incarcerated. Uh, are we doing enough? Uh, and, and last time I checked, it was about $40,000 a year to um, house an inmate. So, you know, what exactly is that $40,000 paying for? Is it a a situation where we have a a group of caged animals? Are we really trying to do things um, that speak to rehabilitation? Are there programmatic thrusts that um, are really impactful? Um, You know, you got to be able to look at what is being done. And then on the other side of it, look at what has been done and how it has yielded good or bad results to kind of figure out uh, where you go from there. So that's a great um, point. I know that, you know, down in uh, Sussex County, um, that's considered one of the uh, programming institutions within the state. And they have programs where uh, the inmates could get a trade and a skill, a flagging license, um, masonry, um, CDL, there's, there's quite a few programs that they have 
created relationships with uh, Votech to be able to um, get some certification and, and be able to have, you know, some soft skills and so forth. So when they come out, it sets them up um, for success. I mean, you, you got to yeah. think about it. If um, at the end of the day, after you've served your sentence, um, say that was, you know, I don't know, six, eight years. If you think about what's happened in the world in the last six years, and yeah. we were just talking about um, that that selfie stick that does all yeah. these things. If you just think about how much technology has advanced in the last six years, certainly, um, you know, you're going to be behind the power curve when you come out. So you have to you know, find some things that make your way to being able to uh, sustain yourself um, once you've come out of incarceration. Um, that transition piece is, is critical. And I think that you, you, it speaks to your point that you're absolutely right, that when people come out, if they return to environments that are not conducive to them being able to carve out a new path, um, that certainly um, leads to the recidivism rate being so high. So, you know, there's, there's some different things that I would like to see done um, that would strengthen um, those relationships that create opportunities um, with community partners to uh, ensure that there's not only a rehabilitation that takes place with incarcerated folks, but that the transition back into mainstream society um, is made in such a way that it reduces the, you know, the reoffending. So, um, you know, those are things that we definitely have to have better conversations about to lower those numbers. It's something that I've have not researched and I know nothing about the Delaware jails, but it's something I've heard about private jails and basically how it's a for-profit or it can be a for-profit business and then stakeholders who own those things. Do you know much about the jail like the actual jail systems as far as are they are they are are they state funded are they privately funded there are um for um profit prison systems and you have to kind of think about that in the space of um are we at that point truly looking to rehabilitate folks or are we exactly looking to retain the maximum amount of uh, inmate population possible to maximize the, the profit margin. So, yeah. you know, that's the, that's what's troubling about for-profit prisons is that um, there's an incentive there um, that doesn't uh, really help people become rehabilitated. There's an incentive for people to stay locked up in the prisons to stay full. So, you know, um, that that's a whole other conversation. We won't even go down that okay. <laughs> awful path. But no, yeah, know, I, I wasn't sure if Delaware's prisons themselves are they all state or are they private. That's why I was just trying to look up, and I wasn't sure if you knew either. Uh, as far as I'm aware, they are state funded, so okay. that's that comes out of the taxpayer uh, dollar. So uh, I know, but there has been talks about. Um, you know, moving toward more private um, situations and settings. And I'm, I'm hoping that that doesn't end up being the case. Yeah, because I, it, it's, you would think if they're, especially so if they're publicly funded, you have every sort of incentive to not have people reoffend because you don't want people in there. You don't want to have to supply the food. You don't want to have to supply the labor. 
maybe you can close wings or whatnot. And if you put that money into training and into transitional programs, be such a better use of the money. Plus then if you're looking at it selfishly from a government standpoint, if you help people make money, you, you get to tax them more. <laughs> you get to bring in more revenue because they're making more money. You would think, but you know, there's job security and, um, people in their ills too. So, right. you know, if you gotta take care of folks, you know, that makes, makes certain that uh, somebody maintains a job somewhere to, um, deal with, with the issue. So, right. or get the overtime. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, it all depends on the lens that you look at it. Personally, I would like to see people find a pathway that puts them um, on a trajectory for success. I'm curious now, just because we were talking about prisons, where you stand on the cannabis issue in Delaware? There's been a couple rallies pre-COVID. Um, it seemed like it was gaining some steam. I know, I think marijuana under an ounce is now a ticket. It's no longer a p- criminal possession. Yeah, there's decriminalization to it. Um, it. It kind of equates to a misdemeanor offense in most um, instances. But, you know, the problem is, is that um, the argument lies with the DUI piece of it and figuring out exactly how much of the active um, uh, THC is present to be debilitating. So, you know, there's there are models all across the country where they have uh been able to successfully gauge um, the active ingredient that would, you know, alter your ability to operate a motor vehicle. And uh, with that particular substance, it stays, um, it doesn't metabolize quickly. So it stays in there for weeks, you know, up to 30 days. So, um, you know, that that's one of the biggest um, concerns, um, aside from the regulatory piece, Um, There's no secret that um, I am very open to the conversation of um, not only having it be decriminalized, but for it to be legalized. Um, I think that the um, things that have to be ironed out is the regulatory piece. Um, And, you know, those are the kinds of discussions that need to happen. I'm I'm a firm believer that prohibition didn't work for alcohol and it's not (laughs) working in this regard. And, you know, you've got it's sad to say, but, you know, you have, you have prisons that are full of people who have had petty drug charges, you know, that now it's decriminalized and, um, you know, they've, they've lost all that time and energy and, and what have you behind it. So, um, you know, it's, um, it's something that I would like to see, um, figured out. Yeah. And that's, I hadn't thought about the breathalyzer component or whatever that aspect for, if you're smoking pot would be, because yeah, you know, you get the, point, what is it? 0.08 if you blow. So you have to, I believe be under 0.08. But then you can have your like side road test as well, right? Where they check your coordination. So I guess if you don't have that, you would, or if you don't have a quote unquote breathalyzer for THC that could measure the level, then you would have to almost just rely on the officer's discretion on your performance on a test, right? Well, I mean, you have your field sobriety test that you would take in any um, situation where an officer might feel that you're not sober. So you get out, and uh, I know that there are different um, different motor skills that if you're um, drunk versus high, you know, there, there are different tells. And I know that you know, there are field sobriety tests that they can do, but say, for instance, um, you passed that test. I know a young man that got pulled over and, uh, I think, um, he had 
uh, smoked in his vehicle at some point. And the officer, uh, when he was pulled over, um, smelled whatever was left, you know, either on his clothes or in the fabric of his vehicle. And uh, he asked him to step out of the vehicle, gave him the field sobriety test, which he passed with flying colors. But because he smelled something, he sent him to the hospital to have his blood drawn. And of course, um, you know, that's going to remain in your system. And um, even though uh, it wasn't a situation where that young man had smoked um, that day or even, you know, in the in the previous couple of days, uh, because it was in his bloodstream, he ended up with a DUI, even though he wasn't swerving or anything. It was just the fact that the officer smelled um, the odor. Wow. So, you know, I mean, that's those are the unfortunate situations that happen. And that's why I said, you know, if you um, even though it's been decriminalized, you know, if an officer has um, some wild hair that day and, <laughs> and you know, you pass the, the sobriety test, but, you know, he's insistent and sends you on down to uh, Kent General um, for that for that uh, blood test. I mean, even though it's been in your system for maybe two, three weeks, you still get the DUI. So, you know, those are the things that um, have to be ironed out. And until we figure it out, I get why um, it hasn't been um, legalized. And I would honestly prefer to see, um, you know, the bugs worked out before you let the train out of the station and and it's full steam ahead and you can't roll it back, you know, once you uh, let it, let it out of the, uh, of the station. So, um, you know, there's definitely some things that have to be figured out. And I think that, um, uh, we're intelligent enough as, uh, people in the state to be able to have that conversation and get it figured out. Yeah. And you would figure with Colorado, there'd be all sorts. I mean, how long have they had legalized pot like two years at this point, three or four years, maybe? Well, you know, even California, um, right? Like there's so many States. I think that the argument was that when they first legalized, um, you know, they saw a surgence of, um, of usage. And so um, after, you know, that initial phase was over um, and it, it became manageable. So, you know, you learn from the models that are currently out there right. and you figure out where it's working and where it's working well. And then, you know, you, you come up with a strategy that um, makes it work. I mean, I think it's doable. I think we just have to figure it out. What do you envision for the, um, if it gets, if it becomes legalized, the distribution, like why is that a, um, an issue when do you just follow like the liquor store, beer store model or you follow like the cigarette model? That's where, um, how it's regulated, um, comes into discussion. You know, some people have said it should be under tobacco standards and, um, there's just, there's all kinds of different scenarios, how, um, it's taxed, um, you know, what the, what the price would be set at. You have to certainly make, make it so that the black market isn't more lucrative than what your retail selling it for. So, you know, that's the economics in there and figuring out the price point. Um, but, uh, you know, when you ask about, um, the growers and the dispensaries and the mechanisms, you know, to be able to do that. The licensing for that is also another topic for discussion. And uh, if you, if you look at uh, some of 
the licensing to be able to grow or, or um, uh, I'm trying to remember what it was, but if I remember correctly, the application to be able to grow was, you know, you had to have been a greenhouse farmer for decades. Oh, wow. You had to have, you know, all these levels and layers of criteria to meet to where it set the bar so high that only a handful of people could even um, get the ability to be a grower here in Delaware. So definitely not like a small little pop-up business kind of a thing. Right. And the conversation furthermore went to home grow and how many, like you have people who have, um, you know, they're card carrier and um, they they have um, the medical marijuana card. And um, one of the topics of discussion was why can't I grow a couple of plants in my house? And so, you know, that discussion led down um, a rabbit hole that said, well, if you're able to grow, then that means that we have the license to come into your house and inspect your house at any time with no notice. Wow. How how do you put that together? Because it's like an ag regulation? You know. Like does corn get get inspected like that? I'm not sure how (laughs) all of these discussions ended up there. But, you know, my thoughts are, um, the guys that have been out here doing this all these years, they're the ones, um, who have the expertise. You would think that we would make it so that they could actually <laughs> profit from it, but yeah. that's not, you know, that's not a good strategy because we want to keep the money in, in other people's hands and, you know, not the people, um, that have been doing it all this time. So, um, you know, I just, I would like to see us come up again with a strategy, um, that works. And some of the suggested pieces of it are just not even um, remotely close to workable scenarios. So, you know, we got to keep hashing it out until um, something comes up. I mean, we had um, a House Bill 110. I think that came up um, two years ago. And uh, there were there were bits and pieces in there that didn't make sense and it got discarded. So, you know, you got to start all over from scratch in some regards. And um even uh, with the medical marijuana, I know that um, one of the bills um, that was passed that as it uh, pertained to uh, veterans that had um, PTSD, mm-hmm. um, at first it rolled out in uh, a good form and then um, it was later circled back and made it so that um, in order for a physician to sign off on it, you had to have tried everything else under the sun and it just not worked for you. Oh my so, gosh. You know, I so mean, we're just going to keep you suffering, right? We're yeah. going to keep you in agony instead of giving you an organic option. Right. Let's give you some right. more medication, some pharma. Yeah. Well, like I said, you know, wow. to every, every ill, there's somebody who profits off of it. So well, my, that's where my head keeps going. So if you look at and in a very broad sense, if you were to legalize marijuana, it would really suck if it happened in Delaware, that it was like a Walmart, Amazon type thought of, hey, we're only going to have like two or three companies that grow it, two or three companies that distribute and sell. Like, wouldn't you, you would hope it would be more like farmers markets can pop up, right? Microbreweries can grow and make their own beer, right? Food trucks can drive around. And like, you would hope it would be more of that model where someone wouldn't have to have a ton of money to build up this whole infrastructure, 
but maybe they could really hone a quality product, much like beer, to be sold that has its own style to it. Like, that would be awesome. I get it. I mean, it's it, we are a capitalist society, and it's right? all about the money. So, I mean, you and I could talk about this all day long, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, the facts are that... Um, when it when it gets to the place where um, there's really a policy that's put into place, you know, all those things have to be talked out. And I'm sure that there's a compromise somewhere middle of the road that right. makes sense. And, and we just have to be diligent about finding it. Yeah. And man, especially with what's going on with COVID and I'm just looking, I'm in my head, I'm just seeing all the loss of revenue yeah. from the businesses, which is going to kill the Delaware budget. Up, um, I don't know if it would kill 2021 because I'm not sure exactly sure like how that money gets put in, pulled out. But you would think tax revenue and opportunity would be at the forefront for legislators to figure out how to bring some in. Well, you got to think about it through um, this lens. There were federal monies that were given to help um, prop up um, states' economies. And so going into COVID, um, we were in a, a surplus. And uh, from all of the things that I've looked at, um, from a, a fiscal point of view, uh, the, the part that is probably um, the most uh, problematic for the state's um, finances and budget is the fact that the tax um, deadline was extended three months. And so where they would have usually seen the revenue generated in April, they didn't see that until July. So um, being able to operate in um, a deficit, if you will, for that quarter is probably um, what has been um, the most difficult to manage. But if you think about um, the unemployment and all of that, you know, there were a lot of federal monies that went into that system that um, those unemployment insurance claims were paid out of. So it didn't, um, it didn't tap into Delaware's money um, as deeply as people would think. So there were, there were a lot of buffers that were put into place. Um, I was, I was looking at something um, yesterday and it was talking about, um, I I'm trying to think what it was. Somebody was asking a question about education. We're not going to go back down that path because I know we have talked that that to <laughs> exhaustion. But um, it, they were talking about um, reopening schools and making sure that there were there were there were funds available so that the schools had the resources that they needed to be able to address. Um, keeping the schools clean and um, all the materials and things that they would need. And um, this was um, a conversation that was going on over in um, D.C. in the Capitol. And, and the gentleman said uh, that every state had billions of dollars in their budget that was exclusively set aside for schools to be able to safely reopen. Huh. So, you know, these are, you know, these are conversations where, um, Delaware has been able to um, utilize federal monies that have helped throughout COVID um, to where it hasn't um, cut so intensely deeply into their budget and, and finances at the state level. Gotcha. However, you know, you did say something about the businesses 
And I think about the mom and pop shops um, that have been closed throughout the pandemic and they will never reopen their doors again. Um, What happens to those folks? You know, do they do they shift and and try to now go back to work? Um, Do they try to do something different? Did they have enough? to be able to sustain them, you know, past this and, and what did they do? Those are the, those are the questions that are more troubling to me is um, what, what does the foreseeable future look like? I mean, Delaware was already um, one of the highest in the nation for unemployment rates. I mean, we'd seen um, some um, lowering of uh, those unemployment rates, but it, it definitely wasn't to the tune of some of um, the national averages um, where uh, unemployment had had significantly dropped. So, you know, now that we're coming um, up to flu season and uh, the possibility of a resurgence and seeing numbers all across the country where um, hospitals are being overrun and um, things are, are not being managed properly, you know, how do we how do we gauge what we do here on Delaware soil? And um, I'm thankful in a lot of respects that um, you know th- there is government um, or governance that is applicable per state. And I, I would like to see for Delaware um, to manage what we're doing from this point forward in such a way um, that we can recover with some degree of certainty um, in the foreseeable future. Uh, we can't make our numbers, um, you know, be in line with other people's numbers because their, their scenarios are not our scenarios. So we have to be very, um, thoughtful to how we implement a strategy that works best for Delaware. You're talking about like the percent of new cases of COVID, or are you talking about specifically with the unemployment rates comparing those numbers? Well, I mean, we have, you know, there's an overlap there. Certainly if we, if we continue to see, um, a manageable amount of, um, people and declining cases with hospitalizations, um, then our strategy for reopening our economy is remarkably different from somebody who's seeing an increase in hospitalization. So, um, you know, I want to make sure that whatever, science we're using is true science for one. Um, I think I shared with you that I have an engineering um, background That's what I did in undergrad. And so, you know, quantitative and qualitative analysis of data is something that I'm intimately familiar with. Um, And also um, I have a master's degree in business with a concentration in finance. So numbers are my thing and being able to take empirical data and make it usable for whatever model you're trying to implement is critical. I mean, um, the buy-in from the public hinges off of that. And I, I haven't, been um, truly um, dazzled by the strategies of reopening based off of any um, firm um, data. So yeah, I don't, I don't get it, man. The the five percent number, I, I feel like it really should be a hospitalization and mortality thing because if you, whatever you get six percent spike in new, new cases, but for, what um, we'll say. 4% of them were asymptomatic and nothing was wrong with the people. 
you're, you're like, well, is, is it that serious? Is it really a spike if those people were not illy affected? And I like the metric, just measuring purely off of positive tests has always kind of bewildered me. I get it. I feel the same way. So I, I think that um, when you talk about, um, you know, your reopening strategy is driven by the science, I, I would like to see um, that science be clearly defined and for it to be um, a mainstay throughout the process. I mean, this this changing, you know, haphazardly throughout whatever it is you're trying to figure out and best, um, you know, best practices or, or what have you. I just, I haven't had a lot of confidence in the science that they're using. Do you, something that's confused me and maybe you can enlighten me on it. I don't understand the, um, I, I shouldn't say obsession, but even the thought of why do we care if Delaware is on other states' quarantine lists? What don't I get about that? Because to me, I'm like, why do I care? Why, 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 why is that even something that's being brought up when we should be focusing on our state? That if I travel to New York, I have to stay somewhere for 14 days. You know, I to a point, I can understand other states' concerns about limiting travel in and out. I mean, you've seen kind of across the country where people uh, from maybe the Midwest travel to Florida, you know, and um, the conversation is about, well, who brought, you know, right. what to where, you know, and the contact tracing, I think, probably ends up being um, more convoluted by trying to just contain whatever it is you got going on. Um, I'd like to see Delaware be stable, um, but, you know, we have beaches and we have people that come and visit. Certainly, you know, we had the um, Harrington Fair um, open over the last week. It'll be interesting to see what happens um, in the next couple of weeks and what the spin will be off of, you know, having that open. Um, I was actually you know. coming at it from a different – what I'm saying is I don't understand why the governor is upset that Delaware gets put on – these quarantine travel advisories. Like wh why is that even taking up his time? And why does he get upset every time we get put on a new, like another state says, if you come from Delaware, you have to quarantine. I don't understand why that's so important to him. You know, that would be a question that you would definitely have to ask Governor Carney. <laughs> <laughs> and I, yeah, I just didn't know if you had some insight into like, and I wasn't trying to like set you up to go no, against I mean, him or anything like that. Anything that I see at this point is supposition on my part because I don't have um, the inner working knowledge of the right. data. I don't know why some of the decisions are being uh, made. I mean, we can we can be offered um, answers and and not be able to have a way to uh, 100% verify whether you know yeah. it's factual or not. I mean, that's a good point. Where are the fact checkers here? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. The only thing I could come up with was like, man, if you work, if you live in Wilmington and then you work or you take the train somewhere, right, to Philadelphia, to New York, if you travel to DC or Baltimore, something like that, like I, then I can understand because does that limit your ability to work? But other than that, I've just always been curious, and I, I feel like there has to be a solid reason, and I just don't know why it's important and why he, um, why why he keeps bringing it up. To be honest with you. But that was it. I was just a little curiosity on my part. So we were talking about uh, the the roles of the lieutenant governor. So we, we definitely um, hit the board of pardons. 
Um, we talked about making sure that the governor's health was okay. And uh, we talked, we, what we didn't talk about was um, that the lieutenant governor presides um, over the Senate. And so um, that role is key because when you have an opportunity to really hear the robust discussions about um, the merits of the uh, Senate floor and the bills that are coming across the legislature, mm. if there's a, a situation where there's a need for a tie-break vote, the lieutenant governor cast that vote. Okay. So, um, you know, again, when we circle back to um, where my core interest in politics is, it's, it's about policy. It's about um, making um, and crafting policy that is uh, the best fit for the people of Delaware. I see that um, talking about the things that are important in my platform, you know, it all circles back to um, my slogan, so that all may prosper. Um, I, I really feel um, that from the questions that I get from people about where I stand on certain issues, one lady uh, sent me an email yesterday and um, she was asking about fair housing. And, you know, one of the things that is a baseline premise for me, and I think we talked a little bit about this before, um, that Maslow's hierarchy of needs talks about putting first things first. Right. And when you deal with the physiological needs of people, you know, basic needs like housing, clothing, food, shelter, um, just to be able to survive, um, housing is a basic need. And uh, she was asking me uh, about the uh, uh, AFFH and if I supported that. And that was something that um, on a federal level, um, the Secretary of Housing, Ben Carson, did away with that. And in its place, uh, opportunity zones were created. And uh, I actually reached out to a couple of people that work in housing um, just to uh, make sure that my knowledge was on point. Um, but so many times you see here, and it, and it really speaks to my third platform point about um, ease of access um, to resources within the state of Delaware. I've, I can tell you a thousand different moments in my own personal walk over the last three decades um, and how hard it was um, just to be able to access the resources. We talked about, you know, putting things in a central location yeah, for businesses and business opportunity. You know, we should be able to um, access resources like um, Opportunity Zone funding um, within the state of Delaware that creates um, fair housing opportunities. Can Those I ask you, I'm completely unfamiliar with fair housing opportunities. Can, can you get, explain that a little bit to me? Because when, when, when you say that in my head, what I'm thinking, and I'm pretty sure it's wrong, is like a cap on rent that people can charge or um, the sale price of the homes that they can ask for? Well, over, over the years, you know, there have, there have always been um, illegal practices that have happened with real estate. I, I have a, a real estate license, um, so I'm pretty knowledgeable about some of these things. But you see where, um, you know, there's been um, gentrification. You've seen where redlining has occurred. You've seen where people just don't have the resources to really be able to be homeowners. Um, and these opportunity zones kind of 
um, create a buffer where people who traditionally um, wouldn't be able to qualify for some types of um, uh, loan products, it gives them an opportunity. So for instance, um, when I first moved back um, to Delaware in 97 after um, my military service, um, I was divorced, a single mom, um, really struggling. And that transition was um, to the point to where until I could um, get dad to pay his child support um, regularly, I was forced to have to do public housing. Um, I wasn't comfortable with that. I, I grew up in an upper middle class family. Um, I was I was taught um, to, to work hard and to support myself and, and not to be um, reliant on um, public assistance. So um, even though it was a transition for me, um, I had to suck up my pride and do what I had to do for the best interest of my children. I didn't want to stay there. So um, I started to kind of um, unearth, if you will, what kinds of programs were going to improve my station and life at that point. So okay. I, I used my um, VA folk, uh, rehab to go back to school. That gave me a stipend. Um, and eventually when um, I was able to get child support, um, you know, all those things changed my financial outlook. I went from zero to a hundred, you know, in, in a matter of, you know, a year financially. Well, as it was at that time, um, there was a self-sufficiency program that was available. And because I was really digging for resources to um, get myself out of that situation, um, I was talking to one of the counselors um, in the housing authority, and he uh, shared with me that there was a self-sufficiency program that Anytime you saw an increase financially um, in, in public housing, you know, that's the strictly income driven formula that determines what your rent is. So say, for instance, um, oh. you experience an increase in your pay. Um, once you, you report that, then they recalculate how much your new rent is. Gotcha. So I got into a program that allowed me to be able to make advances in my pay without seeing penalty, so to speak, for yeah. the increase in my circumstances. So what they did is say, for instance, if I was paying um, $200 a month in rent and my income now made my rent go up to 600, that's an increase in $400 per month in my rent. So because I was working towards self-sufficiency, I still had to pay the $600 a month, but the increase, the difference of the increase, which was say $400, um, that was put into an interest-bearing escrow account that once I completed and made um, satisfactorily completed my, my plan for self-sufficiency, which my goal was to become mortgageable. So I had right. to you know, walk back the debt that, you know, divorce had left me with and, and get my credit, you know, situated. And so um, once I got to that point, um, I had graduated from the program. Well, I had a nice little piece of change that I had accrued in that interest-bearing escrow account for the duration of my program. 
And that money gave me the ability to um, walk into my house coupled with um, first-time homeowners, um, home buyers grant money. Um, City of Dover had a grant at that time. Um, I had participated with in-call research and, um, you know, went through their classes. So I actually walked into my home 20 years ago with equity. And wow. I was able to actually have a little bit of money to be able to get some of the things that I needed um, to uh, furnish my home right. with the money that I had left over. You know, that's that's where opportunity and housing helps. Gosh, and so yeah. if you have um, programs like that, what it does is it helps a person who is having difficulties being able to get over that hump to get a mortgage, get a mortgage. And, and be able to be successful in keeping their home. And how complicated well, was that process to go through? Because I, I thought I heard you name four to five different programs was, <laughs> just telling was, me the story. Um, it was a very arduous um, unearthing of the programs themselves, right? Sean. That's what bothers me is that we have resources that are available, but who the hell knows how to reach them? Yeah. That is my problem. And I know you can you can hear it in my voice. You know that is troubling to me. Is that people are struggling here in the state of Delaware, not because we can't help, but people can't find the resources. Right. It should not be that difficult. No, it shouldn't. And what everything what you said and. In, in the middle of your story, when you were talking about the rent getting jacked up before you told me about the escrow account, I was like, wouldn't it be awesome if that money were put aside and then when they walked out, they were able to get it back and recoup it, which is exactly yeah. what happened. Like that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful that's, that's common a, sense that's a solution. Win -win. No doubt. Yeah. But I'm, I'm wondering how many people in those um, public housing, how many people in public housing know that like, wow, that's an option. Exactly. Or, or they try to, you know, hide exactly. their income for some reason because they're exactly. worried about not being able we, to save. We encourage, um, you know, family disconnect here. There, there are a lot of women who the men don't live in the homes. The fathers uh, aren't there raising their children because two incomes. Um, you know, they're, they're penalized for yeah. um, that man being in the house, you know. And yeah, that makes there, no sense. there are stories about people who are, are inherently trapped on um, – Medicaid because they make $1 over a threshold and they lose their benefits and go back essentially a thousand or more dollars a month trying yeah. to um, do their, their, uh, their employer healthcare copay and deductible. And, yeah. you know, I mean, it's a nightmare and it, there's no reason that we can't treat, you know, some of these programs on, um, you know, means testing. And it's one of the things that I'm looking to see happen in the state of Delaware and something that I'll be putting out um, publicly soon. But um, there's no reason that we can't operate in ways that give people the ability to become self-sufficient and give them a path to success to be able to achieve it. There are more people here in the state of Delaware that um, are looking for a hand up instead of a handout, and they're happy to be able to to get there if they have an opportunity to do so. Well, it's empowering, right? It, it, it is. It's empowering to be self-sufficient and not feel dependent on it anything. Is. And so many people want to get there. You know, um, this is not this is not something um, that is um, discriminatory. Poverty does not discriminate. There's there are as many people of color and um, Caucasian 
that are poor in the state of Delaware. And everybody that comes up to me and talks about, man, I, I really would like to see, you know, my ability to get to a place to where I can sustain myself. I can't tell you how many people tell me that. I have goosebumps just thinking about the, the cries of the people um, in, the, in the communities that I walk through. And it's so sad because the people who have occupied um, these offices and government have been there for so long that they are so disconnected from the needs of the communities. It's very disturbing and it's sad. And you've also got to think if you're in poverty, you don't have that example of non-poverty or the way, like even the understanding of a mortgage versus rent might yeah. be lost on some, they might just think you send a check to somebody and you're like, no, no, you can actually own your own place. What? Well, you, you know, know like stuff another, like that. That's another issue um, that is personal as well. You know, we have to um, uh, teach people wealth management. You know, we have to teach people how to um, deal with money. And, and that's a conversation that could really be had even in the K through 12 spectrum. Oh, it should um, is financial literacy. You know, people are financially illiterate in our society and our kids, you know, definitely are lacking. So if that's something that's not taught at home, it's lost in the school systems. Yeah. And it should be big. No, absolutely. And can I, I meant to ask a moment ago, means testing. I know you said you were going to make that public so you don't have to um, reveal anything, but I don't understand what means testing is. Means testing is simply what it, what it implies. If you are able to contribute X amount of dollars in your means, then that is a direct correlation to what you're required to put in. So, for okay. instance, we talked about gotcha. um, we talked about public housing. There is a formula that you sit down, and it's and it's driven by your income. It determines whatever it is you have to pay for your rent. There's no reason that we can't do that with Medicaid. I mean, mm. that is I've heard people talk. That would make so, so much more sense. Like, it's I, ridiculous. I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but yeah, money. it should absolutely be a sliding scale because you don't just jump yes. up 10 grand at exactly. once. Exactly. And know? there's no reason that we can't do that. I mean, it's huh. a benefit, it's a benefit in the state budget if you think about it, instead of having people that are completely depending on a program become less dependent and paying into it. Yeah. You know, then that relieves the burden off the state tax dollars to be able to support that program. And, and as people get closer to self-sufficiency, then they're off of it. Yeah, man, you're you, gotta de give them, you gotta give them a way to get there. Yeah, and, and you're de-incentivizing de it. You're de-incentivizing doing well. If you're yes. at an hourly job, you yes. might actually be like, no, 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 ball, boss, don't give me a $1.50 an hour raise. I'm telling you, people are incentivized here to stay stuck on poverty. That's so, uh, man, that, uh, it, that It's ridiculous. Yes. It is ridiculous. But see, unless you have lived in that space and had to fight and claw your way out of it, you know, there, there are some people who just don't, just don't have the wherewithal to be able to make it because it, it causes you to have to really struggle for a period until you know, you can catch up and there, I mean, it, it was sad, but you know, at that point where you didn't take, um, uh, your, your employer health benefit plan because it costs too much money. And then you, there were people I know personally, um, I prepared taxes for that preferred to take the hit at the end of the year 
for not have, having health coverage all year. It was cheaper for them. Oh, wow. That's such a shame. It's beyond a shame. Yeah, it 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 shouldn't. And that's actually, um, I don't even know. I, I wish I was smart enough to ask the question in a intelligent way. <laughs> ask but, it the best way you know yeah, how to, right? Sean. It, we'll figure it out together. It's so simple. So like universal healthcare, right? I don't think that can be done on just a state level. I would believe much like Canada, it would have to be a federal thing that says, hey, universal healthcare, everybody has healthcare provided for them. But it does seem now that I'm hearing about understanding more about Medicaid, that there is kind of that ability to have universal healthcare on a state level with Medicaid. Am, am I completely off on that? Well, the Medicaid system is, is in the public assistance um, realm. So it, it goes off of, it's a, it's a strictly income-driven thing right. with that, except for the instance that we talked about. And then, you know. Well, yeah, but that's what I'm I, saying. I don't want to get, I don't wanna get too, too much in the weeds with this because then you start talking about things that go into the insurance commissioner. And that's definitely oh, not, not where I'm at. Got you. But, okay. I mean, that, that's kind of where those conversations come in. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, there, there have been conversations that I've heard um, people discuss back and forth about, um, you know, universal health care. That kind of goes towards um, socialist type um, principles, and and then how much of the government do you really want to be in your life? You can't have your cake and eat it too. So if you want socialized medicine, you know that comes at a cost too. So you know that that's the discussion that we have to have here as a a, a republic. <laughs> You know, how much do we really want to allow government to overreach into our lives? Yeah. And in, in my real simple way, I was thinking like, so if you're, if you're, if you are not, if you are not making a lot of money, you can get Medicaid. What if we just gave Medicaid to everybody? Because those people, the government's not um, knowing their medical business. They're using Medicaid as their insurance, right? So they still have their private doctors but the doctors then bill Medicaid. But, but there, there are limits. And right. so, you know, even, even if you have um, Medicaid, um, you, the, the protocols to be able to get certain things done, um, you know, they're confining. So like when you have your own private insurance, you, you have more latitude with some things. Um, so okay. for instance, like with Medicaid, after you get to be, I think it's 21, um, you lose your, your dental benefits. Mm -hmm. So um, there are adults that are walking around with their teeth falling out because <laughs> they don't have any dental gotcha. insurance. Um, vision. I mean, there, there are things that um, you, don't, you don't get being on Medicaid as an adult. So, you know, it's a series of trade-offs. The kids are the ones that um, tend to have um, uh, a larger amount of services that are available uh, to them. Okay. So um, depending on the authorizations that have to be um, in place to be able to get testing, or um, it might be that the prescription drug um, that on your plan um, is not covered, and then you got to go through you know, all these layers of, of whatever to be able to get a medication if it's not on 
um, the approved uh, medications list. Gotcha. So, I mean, it's not like it's a, uh, it's it's uh, the the best medical it's, coverage yeah, that, that you insurance. could that you could pay for. So, you know, there 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 are. Um, good a good part about it and then there are bad parts about it okay that, that makes sense yeah I, I just know it's been a topic and i've i haven't learned or read researched how canada pulls it off how you even would get like an mri or you would handle if you broke a hand or broke your wrist you had to go to the hospital stuff like that um but i just i don't know i'm just interested when you hear about this and you hear about people having jobs and then maybe the benefits are good, but you don't want to start your own business. So you stay working for someone instead of starting your own business because the benefits are so good. And then you have people who have small businesses that um, pay. people full time because they can't afford yes. to pay the, the um, <laughs> employer benefits. Yes, so. exactly. Yeah. Things like that get me thinking like, man, if Medicaid could somehow be almost like in a very simple way, like, Hey, you're giving us a stimulus check for $1,200. Great. Thank you for COVID shutting down the economy. I get 1200 bucks. What if like each month people just got like whatever, $700 worth of insurance and they picked a plan through it or something like that. This way you well, would almost encourage that. That's kind of where my mind was going. Cause I feel like it would what? encourage that $1,200 was not free money. We're oh, yeah. that somewhere <laughs> down the line. You can bet your bottom dollar yeah. on that. Um, you know, the government has a way of recouping its losses and, and we're going to have to see some, some different things over the next, um, couple of decades that are re a recouping mechanism for all of this money that we've hemorrhaged this last yeah. um, six months. I mean, this money is not free. I mean, we're going to pass on, um, national debt to our great, great grandchildren. Yeah. What's after trillions? Is it gazillions? It's too much. I, like, what I don't even know. Been? And I feel like no one should have to know what comes after trillions. Like, I was scared when we went from billions to trillions. Like, that blew my mind. And now I'm like, I don't even know. God. What the heck? Just add a, add a couple hundred more zeros on it. I yeah. mean, after a while, I mean, after hot, it's just hot. You know, it's yeah. crazy. It's just cold. I mean, yeah. but the realities are that the amount of debt that um, we have national level is going to be something that's going to be a generational debt for generations to come. And it's very sad. It is. It, it very much is indeed. Hey, how, um, I didn't ask you at the beginning, beginning and I apologize. How are we doing on time? It is 7.15. You've got 17 more minutes. 17 more <laughs> minutes. Nice. All right, cool. So then I actually wanted to ask you, and I was trying to sneak it in when we were talking about um, cannabis and prisons, but defunding the police is kind of a topical thing. And I can't, I, I can't get down with that whole um, proposition. Um, seems very know, weird to you me. Have, you have, okay. You know that I served as a, as a military member. I do. Um, so I think about... Um, how uh, you serve security on a national level there. Well, at at the state level and the local level, you know, these are people who give us security, you know, within our communities. And I, I had this conversation with someone, you know, in the absence of order, it's chaos. So if somebody is breaking into my house, um, even though there was one or two or a handful of percentages of, 
of the global population of officers who are the bad apples. You know, those other 90%, 95% are good officers. And those are the ones that when somebody is breaking in my house, I want to show up at my door. So, you know, we, we can't look at this as a punishment for um, the majority of, of officers who are inherently good. This is, this is a, a training issue. Um, we have people who are out there that are doing these things and somehow or another, um, they didn't, they didn't pass a litmus test somewhere. And I don't know what we have to do to refine that process. Or, but, um, or, or they know, weren't tested again. Like, I really it, do wonder how often do you get like just a re like a man, is it an annual psychological evaluation? You I almost, don't know. You almost I feel like it should be, dude. The, I, right. The I job don't know is the stressful. To that question. Yeah. But, cause um, think about I, it. If, I'm sorry to cut you off, but like, think about like, what if, if everyone had to, as a police officer, dude, every six months, you're going to take half a day and you're just going to check in with a counselor and we're just going to make sure things are going well for you. And if something's not, we're going to figure out how we can kind of support you to make it well for you. Right. Like just a mandatory check-in to help alleviate the stress that these officers are under every single day. Uh, I get it. I get it. I mean, Mental health and wellness is an aspect of everyday life for everybody and people who are in positions where they see more than their fair share of stressors, um, you know, there definitely needs to be um, some of those types of um, interventions that are available. I mean, um, that's, that's for the safety of all people. And certainly, you know, when you, when you think about um, the officer kneeling on the neck of George Floyd, and then you hear the disturbing facts that he was brought up on um, infractions 18 times. And didn't two of them involve on two separate incidents firing or shoot, shooting his weapon? I thought another death. You know, it was, it was very... It was very vague, right? I don't know if we it, saw the same thing, but I, it, it was like a one sentence, like almost timeline of each instance. Well, that I, I mean, had seen. It, it was enough to raise the eyebrows of people to say, how did this guy continue working on the force when no clearly doubt. he was brought up on um, some pretty serious infractions? So, I mean, somebody dropped the ball somewhere. And I, I can't help but to think that that is the reason why so many of these instances happen is because there have been things that have come up that should have raised some eyebrows. And, you know, again, we have to be strategic about um, where is the middle ground? When do we park somebody on the bench that we're not feeling 100% sure that they are fit for duty? Is it I mean, a, you know, do you th- think it's a union? conversations you have to have. Do you it's think not it's about a, funding. So is it a union thing? Because their, 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 their contract is, collectively bargained, right? So isn't there a state of Delaware police union? And then each town has their own union from what I understand. Well, even if you have a collective bargaining unit, I was a, I was a shop steward um, for DOL. And even if you have a a collective bargaining that goes on, um, you know, when you, when you bargain your contracts, I mean, I can't see where those kinds of things for training are, um, you know, a non-negotiable point. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't that be something that um, would be able to be done, even in the constraints of a union? Well, no, I was referring to the previous infractions and maybe being let go. 
Oh, so, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so, so what I'm wondering is if, if the ball so the was union, dropped. The union rep came in and, and said something that, that got him off. From what I understand, you know, he stood he stood um, in front of a judge for those things and got let off. So I don't know what happened in that courtroom that that made that happen, but it certainly raised a lot of eyebrows about, you know, how did this guy get off like this? Yeah, it just it and again it's my ignorance, but I would love to read and I don't maybe I wouldn't love to read it, but I'd be interested to read the wording of when charges are filed against you, those infractions. What are like you, we're taking your officer's license. You are no longer allowed to be a police officer versus and those, your, those conversations definitely need to be had. I yeah. agree with you. And that those are things that I think are um are practical to be able to deal with this kind of a situation. And the funding is not is not something that that fixes this problem at all. Yeah, because you have to replace it with something. What are some, what are your what are some of your uh, trainings that you'd like to see? So, like me, I just threw out there, hey, mandatory every six months a psychological check in, but I didn't let you get to actually talk about any trainings you think would benefit the police. You know, I would have to really take a look at what ever they had currently going on to really be able to speak to that with any type of certainty. Yeah. Cause I, I don't know exactly what type of training is, is had. I just think that, That's a good point. um, you know, we have to do something, um, a little bit different to be able to keep from having, um, you know, these kinds of occurrences. So whatever needs to be tweaked, it needs to be tweaked. Yeah. I just, it, to me, it's, to me, I look at some of these and I see very, I see officers in fear when, when these tragedies happen. And it makes me wonder, I don't, I don't believe they should be in fear if they're properly trained. Now, whether that's in de-escalation, whether that's in their confidence of hand-to-hand -hand combat in some sort of like jujitsu way, whether that's training with like a firearm and they're confident that they know if they shoot, they can shoot to a specific location. Like, right. I, I just wonder what when I mean, that fear you could, comes you up thought that it was common sense not to put somebody in a in a chokehold you know oh, beyond that even, yeah and then even have to say that but no. clearly it, it needed to be said so now that it's been said you know but um in a, again whatever that conversation um needs to be had i think somebody was saying that it would probably be beneficial to have um you know, a neutral party come in and really be able to take a look at, um, you know, what needs to be done. Because if you if you send somebody in that's been working in it forever, they may not have the most um, objectivity. Right. Objectivity. So, and I think what you yeah. said is really smart. Like you start off with like, can I just see a calendar of what an officer's training once exactly. they once they're hired? Can I just get a calendar and block out the days when they get training? Tell me what those trainings are. I just I want mean, to yeah, say seriously. I mean, you have yeah. to start at the very beginning. I mean, where yeah. else are you going to start? You got to um, look at it and, and pass it on to, you know, two or three other sets of eyes to look at it again. And then, you know, you collectively sit down and figure out what the strategy is. And, and, you know, just because you figure out a strategy doesn't mean that you shouldn't come back and tweak it periodically because oh, yeah. you should come back, you know, every couple of years and reevaluate what your program is doing and figure out, you know, if, if there are some things that need to be fine-tuned. Yeah, I, I don't think that we just roll something out and it stays like that indefinitely. Right. 
No, yeah, that's just good business practice in general. Like, is the training doing what the training should? We're putting money and resources into it. That's right. And are we seeing the effect we want? Much like education, <laughs> much like that's fair right. housing and yeah. things like that. It's almost like with everything. Exactly. Yeah. You've come full circle back to my first platform yeah. point, which is effective government. Yeah. Is it working for us? You know, and we have to constantly revisit that question and and make sure that across, you know, a three to five year window, we're, we're looking just to see how we're doing. Yeah, see and measure, see and measure. All right, Danielle, we are going to end with this. And I want you to have a little fun. And you're going to tell Haven't a story. Have we been having fun? I thought we yeah. were having a ball. I get, that's very true. <laughs> it, it is kind of, it. I enjoy it. It's funny, man, because I really am discovering that I am just a dork. I was riding today with my daughter. Um, picking up some takeout and um, we were passing all the political signs and I was like, Ooh, you see that sign? Daddy's had him on the podcast. Daddy's had her on the podcast. And she was like, it's got to feel so special to talk to these people for so long because I don't think everyone gets to do that. And it's kind of nice that they get to just talk and hear and you get to ask questions. And I was like, that's from a 10 year old. She could identify like the, um, how nice it is, how kind, how appreciative I am of you guys giving your time to come on here. And um, how rare it is for someone to actually get to have like an in-depth conversation with people running for office. So well, yes, Sean, you know, I mean, we're elected to represent people. And if you are so disconnected from people That's that true. you can't have a conversation like this, you don't need to be serving in office. That period. Something to be said about that. But so we'll make this the most fun we've had on the podcast. Maybe. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, to put you on the spot for a little bit. Do you know how the podcast end? No, no. No one does. Actually, one person has. Shout out, Kristen. Um, I do that just to point out that uh, people should listen to an entire podcast. Then they would be prepared. Everyone, be on alert. What I'm going to ask you for, Danielle, okay. is your best first for last. We've saved the best first for last. Sponsored by Abstinence. Waiting makes it worthwhile. Say that again. <laughs> your best first for last. So this will be the last thing people get to hear while they're getting to know you. And what I try to do is like best for last. So the best first, like a really cool first experience that you had in your life, that would be neat that people knew about you that they may not know. Mm. And I love putting people on the spot because it's more authentic. <laughs> okay. So my funnest fact about my person is the fact that I have 10 children. Biologically, no twins, no triplets, six girls, four boys. I did not want to have not one child as a teenager. <laughs> not one. You know why? Because my job as a teenager was to babysit. Uh. And I don't know if you remember this uh, old cartoon. It was called Baby's Kids. Oh, yes. The The... The phrase was, we don't die, we, we multiply. multiply. <laughs> Those kids were the worst of the worst of the worst, okay? And I had the most challenging children ever when I babysat. So I said, Lord, please help me not to bring an individual into this world that I have to feel this way about. And it just was, it was ironic because I was a junior at UD. And I was one of, I forget how small that percentage was that was on birth control pills. And I got pregnant with my first child. 
Oh my gosh. Yes. Where is your mind as a junior when you're, I mean, so close to the end. Good grief. You know, I was, I was not ready for that, for that conversation at all. And when I thought about it, um, and this is also a fun fact, I'm actually adopted. So I have never had a biological connection with another human being ever. Wow. So having that life growing inside of me, it kind of evolved me as a person. And that baby, oh my goodness, my first child, she was a girl. She spoiled me. She didn't do a lot of crying. She wasn't fussy. She was the cutest, cuddliest little thing ever. And I was in love from day one. Mm. She spoiled me. And it changed my, my perception forever of kids. But I made a commitment at 19 years of age. I had her two months shy of my 20th birthday that my life no longer belonged to me. And I think that I have always throughout the entire course of my life lived a life of servitude, service above self. Mm. So that's my end. <laughs> Man, I thought <laughs> when you said I made a commitment and I was, I was almost going to jump in like to stop at 10. <laughs> no, I just, you know, I made a commitment at that yeah. point that, my life was not my own anymore That's and that beautiful. I could not make selfish decisions right? anymore. You know, it's, it's been a tough road. I've been, um, a single parent at times. I have, um, had to finish up my education, um, not in a traditional way right after high school. I was, um, I, I'm the poster child for you can do it. I had to go to school and raise kids and work and it was tough. But, you know, it built a lot of character in me. And, uh, you know, it's those hardships that have made me so incredibly passionate about the things that I want to see change in Delaware. And the experiences going through them where you're like, man, this could just really help out people in the multiple positions that you've been through in your life. Yeah. God, Danielle, it was so great getting to know you. Um, Plug, if people want to find out more about you, about your campaign, if they want to donate, volunteer, where should they go? www. Now you know my name is tough, but I've been <laughs> emphasizing it. Danielle, D O N Y A L E four F O R Delaware spelled out dot com. Got you. And I'll be sure to put that in the in the description of the podcast. Thank you. And you can put my phone number up there. I've I've had the same phone number for 15 years. It's my personal cell phone. It rings from the crack of dawn until much later than my husband would like. But I'll answer. <laughs> You are, you have no fear. If you were doing that, you are fearless. I love it. It's about accountability. Mm. And I found that most of the people who are elected to represent us hide from us. I won't do that. Now, do you actually have to get through a primary or are you oh. already good? Are you good for general election oh. in November? I am the endorsed GOP candidate. I have no primary so I am on the November 3rd ballot. So gotcha. when you guys get to your ballot, if you're a Democrat, that means you got to cross over to the other the other line, but find Danielle Hall, okay? Because you know she has Hall in her name too. We won't talk about her, but you find <laughs> Danielle and you check my box because I will be accountable and I will do my very best to represent the people of Delaware. I love it. 
Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thank you so much for giving up so much of your time. Thank you and, for um, having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, I've really enjoyed getting to know you. It's been um very, very enlightening, man. Like very, very intellectually enlightening. Thank you so much for the knowledge. Well, make sure that you cast your vote for me in, in the um in the fall. I appreciate that. All right. Hey, have thank a good night. You. And I've now Bye. become Bye. an expert on the subject I Thanks to Danielle Hall for coming on and giving so much of her time and thoughts. Um, very interesting takes, very interesting perspectives, and she does have her own focus group. I love that fact with such a large family. <laughs> um, if you want to find out more about Danielle, you can just go to her website, DanielleFordDelaware.com. That is D-O-N-Y-A-L-E-F-O-R, Delaware.com. And remember, the general election will be November 3rd. Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You podcast. Make sure you check out andrepsyche.com for some trippy merch that's going to be worth checking out. And if you haven't done so already, before these words leave your mind, please, friend, follow the Getting to Know You pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The word of the podcast, the word of the pod, prosper. Prosper is the word of the pod, so post that word on any of our social media or tag the Getting to Know You pod when you post it on yours, and you will get a shout-out on the very next pod. Also, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You podcast, whether you're listening on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor or advertise on the Getting to Know You podcast, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. All you've got to do is message us. Don't forget, go out and vote.